People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning. Welcome. You're with Greenwashed. I'm Jaspreet here with Don Nicholson. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And it is good to be back after a break last week, but I've been busy. How about you, Don? Have you had a break? Well, I've had a bigger break than you uh but you're right uh, you'd think a fortnight off um things would be we'd be refreshed and ready for action and uh i dare say we are but um you know it's been a battle hasn't it the last fortnight you've had uh in your job a lot of local flooding localized mm. flooding um mm. mind you lots of flooding in otago and southland uh and you've had to have oversight and and be working with the community so i imagine you have been a whole lot busier than me it, it's, it's been a busy time, and uh, this past weekend just gone again. We've had more rain. It is, uh, they say it's an El Nino year, Don? Yeah, I think that's it. Mm. Yep. And, and of course, there's some commentary about how um, the Tongan volcano put a whole lot more uh, moisture into the atmosphere, and some people are saying that could be uh, having an effect on, on southern New Zealand or New Zealand in general. But who knows? It's... Um, it's traditional equinoctial weather. Uh, we always get rough weather in the south uh, around the middle of the longest to the shortest day, the equinox. And uh, this is not unique, but it will be for some who haven't um, been through this before. But the old time farmer and me, he's been here many times. And the winds, Don. The oh. winds. I mean, I went into town this Monday. We were uh, flooded and couldn't head out this last weekend. And the place was littered with billboards, literally driving in at so many places. Yeah, well, they are a scourge on the landscape at the moment, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I say I say facetiously. Um, yeah. Look, it's again, the winds, that's the thing about the equinox. The winds are severe and the weather changes on the south coast very quickly. Uh, Friday afternoon, for instance, it was you know awful, hailing gale force and then clear and then an hour later, back to the same. So it's what we get on the South Coast and, uh, you know, we just need to tough it out. But interestingly, you've done that sort of good work and um, you joined me last 
Tuesday in uh, Frankton for Asim Maholtra and uh, Matt Sheldon and Linda Wharton's uh, evening. Gosh, that was a good evening. A sad, but I mean, listening to Linda Wharton, uh, you know, she had me um, you know, emotional about it, really, to think how she is so elegant and how she has done her research, put it all together and presents her case without any malice, just with real elegance um it was it was a really interesting evening it, it, it was a good evening that was a pretty packed room out there in queenstown i was glad i drove in though it was driving from uh southland <laughs> there for three hours and drive back i got home after midnight but i am i glad i i made that trip uh asim malotra of course was fantastic fantastic the way he presents his information you were a great mc on the night don <laughs> i i heard some cheers for you there well, wasn't that interesting? I mentioned RCR and you, Jaspreet, and we got um, full applause. It was it was really uh, gratifying to know that uh, all those people would no doubt have downloaded the new app and um, are loving RCR. So uh, I don't know whether that was recorded, but um, the owners of RCR they would be very happy to have been uh, here to to have heard that applause. I think. Yeah, it, it, it was. You know, uh, we've, we've lived through the last three years, yet, yet every time you have a seminar like this, a webinar, a face-to-face -face meeting like that one, it brings it all back home to the insanity we've lived through. Yeah, and around this stage that night was all those boards with Vax injured and, and, and people that have passed away. Um, hearing the stats of 184 uh, people passed away with defined um, vaccine um injury or aftermath of vaccines causing death and had and about 3,000 now listed as uh, vax injured. Uh, you know that's only the tip of the iceberg, but those numbers are there. So anyone who denies and thinks that's okay, it's not yeah, okay. It never was okay. The gaslighting mm. is, is, mm. is never okay. Never okay. Yeah, never okay. So that was, um, yeah, that was Tuesday. Uh, but what else has been happening, Jasper? Politics, politics here, politics in Australia. Well, Dan Andrews has oh. moved on uh, to greener pastures, I'm sure, but we they, those haven't been announced. But we are talking about the Premier of Victoria, but mm. its epicenter being Melbourne. I think they called it the most locked down city in the world at one point at the height of the COVID insanity. Yeah, interesting man. They call him... Um, they call it Danistan and Dictator Dan. I mean, he deserved all those titles. I don't, I don't know. Was it the unions that were pulling his strings? I don't know. But interestingly, his successors got the same initials as our former prime minister and the JA. She, she is called Jacinta Allen. And my understanding, listening to uh, the news items, is she's never had a real job. So perhaps that's similar to many of the politicians here. So she's going to be controlling... Uh, She's Premier of Victoria. They've got a $200 billion debt hanging over them. And she's never had a real job. How does that work? That's just probably well suited to it. Jeez. Oh, She can't do much worse. I mean, for me, other than, you know, we saw those police atrocities, the huge overreach by government uh, everywhere. Victoria was no exception. But I'll never forget uh, Dan Andrews standing by the sidelines when the, he brought drag queens into the parliament and hosted uh, a drag queen story time event for kids. 
in the parliament to mark the international day against transphobia he was yeah. seen smiling as he stood on and i just wondered since when this all of this become the remit of politicians doing all of this and uh, the state government also pledged 1.8 million to rainbow health australia and all of that is fine but you know priorities and having drag queen story time hours he won't be just, missed he won't be missed just that's very odd but it's not interesting it seems part of the narrative now is he waited until the federal government picked up the royal commission of inquiry into or the, the inquiry into the covid response over there so basically uh he's moved off before he could be called effectively to uh be part of that inquiry. Well, I hope they have a rule in Australia that subpoenas people like anywhere else in the world. Uh, I don't know how that would work, but it makes no sense to me that if you've been party to the aspects of the inquiry, why mm. wouldn't you have to front? Why wouldn't you have to front? So uh, let's just see how that unfolds. And I'm interested to see how that will unfold under a new administration here, uh, an inquiry into the COVID response in New Zealand. There seems to be a pattern here, isn't it? Oh, I, I uh, think... Ms. Arden, she resigned in January. We yeah. had what I call pretty much her clone, Sana Marin, the ex-Finnish uh, Prime Minister, her resign. Who was next, Trudeau? Oh, oh, Trudeau is the rumour, but just remember there was Roger Cook in West Australia. Uh, sorry, uh, not not Roger Cook, he was the successor. Uh, the guy, I've just slipped my mind, uh, the former Premier over in West Australia. That We had... Um, uh, clean out in New South Wales, and um, the guy Chris Minns is now the Premier, so Labour Premier, and it seems that Palaszczuk in Queensland is under the pump. So it seems that none of them are too too concerned about losing their titles either. That's There doesn't seem to be any sort of, oh, well, um, we're, we're not happy about leaving. They all seem to be sort of quite happy they're moving on. So the damage is done or they've, they've done, done their, their job. jobs. Done their job. We yep. don't call it damage, Ron. They've done their jobs. And, you know, Sana Marine, mm. the Finnish PM, she moved into Tony Blair's think tank. Mm. Jacinda Ardern has moved into Prince William's uh, One Earth Shot Prize NGO to save the climate. Yeah. Uh, the greenwashing continues. Where does Grant Robertson go if he doesn't make it through the gate in, in this next... Uh, Parliament. I mean, he's he's at risk if Labor's polling is uh, is uh, comes through on on polling day. He's at serious risk of not being back in the Parliament. Um, I dare say, with the legacy of uh, debt and deficit that he's put up, I suppose he won't be too worried. What will he do next? What will he do next? Get in the removal business, Robo Robbie's or Robo's removal business. I, I wonder where is uh, Nana Mahuta going next? That's that's where I'm. I, I know she went to New York last week, talking on the United Nations uh, 78th General Assembly, talking about how we need to be, you know, completely ending fossil fuels yeah. in the Pacific because climate change is our biggest existential threat. Oh. Where is she going to go? after all of this oh there'll be some high paid sinecure for it interestingly one thing before we talk about that a bit more i'm really grumpy with postal or early vote voting i do not like it i've never liked it i i don't know what your opinion is but to me it has no justification that people I don't should enjoy be voting it. i i like yeah. the whole experience of going in and voting in person yep. well but just this early voting before polling day 
Mm. The day of the election, people can have made up their own mind. That's fine. But to me, it should never be done before polling day. And I don't know why it is that um, it, 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 it is now encouraged more than discouraged. So uh, anyway, that's just me, perhaps, but I'd uh, love to have feedback on that by the, if, if, if it's out there. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And so you've actually um, been on a, on a bit of a crusade. You sat through six hours and, uh, at the uh, conference desk yesterday on the webinar. Oh, sorry, the- last week. Hmm. The life of the party. That's me, Don. The most yeah. in fasc- fascinating, interesting guest you'll ever have a dinner party. God, I wonder why people put up with me, honestly. And so what was uh, that about? What was that about? Tell us a bit about it. <laughs> Old hobby horse, Don. Agenda 2030. So this one, you know, when you have a conference in New Zealand happening, which was supposed to happen at our parliament, the advancing agenda 2030 I had to be attending that. But incidentally, this was supposed to be at the parliament, the people who had bought tickets, flights, and so on. The United Nations Association of New Zealand that hosted this conference, which technically was called Advancing the 2030 Agenda, they moved it to online only. And they still charge for it. $30 something, I don't know, plus just or excluding just, something's gone on my credit card. But they still charge for it, and they cited uh, protests and dangers and disinformation and threats. But I think they know, should have paid you. I think they should have paid you to attend. Uh, yeah. That that's that's a quarter of my day that I'm not getting back, mm. and essentially reconfirming all that we've been talking about over these last few years. We had speaker after speaker, and I think uh, RCR is going to be sending out invites to Mm. many of the panelists that day. We had uh, a councillor, we had uh, an MP. We didn't have a national MP. I saw a Labour MP, uh, Mr. Ibrahim Omar. I saw people from other countries pop in, from Cuba, from Egypt, Mm. and other places, but... We had Ashley Bloomfield as the keynote speaker. Mm-hmm. And, and Ellen, uh, Ellen Bollard. Oh, yes, Don. Alan Bollard, the ex-Reserve uh, Bank uh, governor. Mm-hmm. When when was Alan Bollard the governor, Don? I, I think it was around 2005, 2010, somewhere in there. I know that when I was in Wellington, he was certainly in that hot seat. Um, I interacted with him a bit, and he was on monetary policy just fine by me, but uh, he told me... Uh, at the time, uh, we needed to go out and jawbone down interest rates, tell the banks they're overcharging farmers. And and so he did a good thing, gave me good advice, and we did that and saved the farmers of New Zealand, actually, what probably turned out to be hundreds of millions. Not many people would know that, but the interest rates came down faster than they otherwise may have done. But interestingly, he's now in a role, I think, with Infrastructure New Zealand or something like that. And seeing him on that replay that you sent me uh, talking about the climate refugees and uh, the number of um, migrants that will come to New Zealand because of climate. Uh, yeah. I seem to be outside his remit to me. I don't know how, how all of a sudden he becomes an authority on all this stuff. So Paul Brennan had uh, the political panel hash this out uh, on Friday. So, you know, I won't be playing that clip now. But uh, out of, I think Alan Bollard held forth for about 20 minutes later in the afternoon 
But the point he made was that we need to be ready on a scale of, you know, it could be, I think he was talking about the entire Oceania, Southeast Asia area, about millions of climate refugees and hundreds of thousands of climate refugees in New Zealand. It's it's amazing how these guys know it. Oh, I think it even went up more into some sort of lower-lying Asian delta mm. areas. Um, but imagine the pressure on infrastructure. Imagine the pressure on um, on everything in this country if all of a sudden the gates open. Uh, and and so are these people? Are they advanced planning? What's going on here? It doesn't seem. Uh, it doesn't seem that we need to be so panicked by it, but they're talking about it. And then why would you move these people if there are climate refugees in the Pacific? As Nanaya said in the United Nations uh, on the General Assembly Conference, that was 18th to 20th of September. Why would you move them to New Zealand? Aren't we ourselves at the risk of being inundated by rising sea levels and need <laughs> to be moved into high-density apartments you know, need uh, to have managed retreat and move into 15-minute cities. Alan Bullard, incidentally, spoke about all of that. He spoke he about 15-minute cities. He spoke about managed retreat and how that's happening. It's it, yeah, it does all seem of this hurting is, the hurting the sheep, hurting the sheep. Um, people people do have to stand up and just say, um, "We don't want this." They do have to say that. Um, there needs to be some clarity about that response. But how many, don't, to be very frank, how many people would have sat through from 12 to 6 that day like I did? Uh, you know? You are, a, bra you are bra a brave soul. You are unique, Jasper. You are <laughs> unique. And and actually, I listened to you on Paul Brennan's shows. You um you gave a very good praise of those, um, those events that you've attended in the last week. So... Uh, yeah, backer for punishment. You could yeah it that way. Keep, keep it up, please. I need you to be doing it, so we don't have to. <laughs> that sounds selfish, doesn't it? But you also came up with uh, a conference from 2015 that you uh, just sent me uh, earlier about the uh, keynote address by the then Malaysian Prime Minister, uh, Mister. What was his first name? Muhajir Muhammad. Muhajir Muhammad, and uh, how he talked about. The potential for this borderless world and then and the one or new world order you know we never talk about it in new zealand never talked about it um uh no. that i'm aware of but but it was quite openly talked about and, and amongst quite a large number of dignitaries in 2015 and yeah. he spoke with such clarity he did speak with such clarity and what what's happened to our parliamentarians Let, let's see don if uh well we're chatting i can bring up a brief clip from that this mm. is the malaysian prime minister muhajir muhammad i believe it was nearly 90 then uh, mr muhammad is 98 today by according to wikipedia so this is him speaking at the new world order conference 9th of march 2015 at putrajaya malaysia have a listen oh for example that politically there is no freedom for any nation. When we talk about free speech, free freedom of, and human rights, etc., it is with regard to your own national government. Internationally, there is no free speech. If you say the wrong thing, you will be taken to task 
and you will be vilified in the international press, which is under their control. If you say the wrong thing, action may be taken against you. And the wrong things are those said which seems to negate or reject the idea of a new world order which is already in being today. You can criticize your own government but not the power that is running the world today. So we find that already there is a new world government enforced with powerful military forces and a willingness to subvert and undermine the governments of all countries. Politically, we see them urging every country to undergo regime change, except for those who are already submitting to them. There must be regime change so that all governments in this world would submit to this world power, this world government. And Interesting, wasn't that, on? So in, uh, the byline for this conference, the New World Order Conference 2015, was recipe for war or peace. Mm. And interesting. I'd love to know, and I could have studied this uh, but didn't, of course, because I'm so reliant on you, Jaspreet. What's happened in Malaysia since 2015? Uh, have they caved into the greater powers outside their borders, or are they um, trying to retain nationhood at a high level? Because that's that's critical. I mean, that's what that's what we're sort of missing in the New Zealand discussion. We're not, you know, this this sort of stuff he was talking about. If you just think about the last three to six years. It's all around us here. This 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 reduction of free speech, this censoring, it's all here. And yet we say there's nothing to see here. Now, so yeah, I'd love to know what's happened in Malaysia. I mean, but it, out, outwardly, I think just like us, most countries keep up appearances, don't. Mm. But if just as you said, what COVID has shown us, there is there is power, powerful players who decide pretty much identical responses, be it Dan Andrews, be it Jacinda Ardern here, be it Trudeau, be it Sana Marine, mm. be it mm. Narendra Modi in India, one for all, all for one. Yep. And just uh, adding to, to that sort of topic, in the last few days I've been given a um, YouTube video to watch and I, well, listen to actually, it's two and a bit hours, but it was Myron Fagan talking about the um, genesis of the Illuminati and how it came to be and and its its activities right through to today uh to be fair and he this was sorry 50 years ago but he was still sort of putting his philosophies out as recently as seven or eight years ago i think and of course um then we had another of our former guests steve snoopman edwards put out a um new um article this week that's a long read makes mm-hmm. you think it makes you think uh sure the people in the beehive will be saying, uh, you know, Nicholson's lost it. He's 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 he, he's <laughs> yeah. gone to the dark side. But um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm prepared to listen to all sides of the story, and it some of the stuff resonates with me now. Yep. And so, uh, yeah. And by the way, haven't we had great feedback from um, the Owen Jennings interview uh, on the demonization of methane? Man, we've had some great feedback on that. 
Yes, and and it is. It's very important. Groundswell is uh, pushing the same message. I believe they support the new methane accord that this group has put forward. And for listeners, if you have not listened to the Owen Jennings interview, it was on replay Monday last when we took a short break to recharge the gray cells. Have have a listen. If you've got the app, it makes it that much simpler to search, you know, just pop it in the search button. Any feedback, please. Our number still remains 2057 or email us at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. But if you want to go and have a look at the methane, the new methane accord based on science that the group are talking about, please go to dub 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 methane dash accord. There's a dash there. Methane dash accord dot co dot nz. And I have a read. You might like to put your name and signatures to the people who are fronting this campaign to yeah. add to their numbers. I certainly mm. did. Yeah, and interestingly, on that li- uh, line, there's um, Professor William Happ has just finished his four stop tour in Australia where he um, talked about. CO2 and why it's such a useful gas effectively. It's not something to be demonized either. Um, that from the uh, Institute of Public Affairs, the IPA have put up a YouTube video of the Sydney Forum. It's about 45 minutes. A very worthy listen. Um, even for someone who's listened to this stuff for years, there was a few new snippets in it, and I thought um, a worthy, a worthy listen. So if you need to, just go on to YouTube, IPA. William Harper, um, Sydney, and I think you'd find it. Yep. So, by the way, if, you know, going back to um, to political debates and the leaders' debates, have you uh, joined in any, um, Jasper? Have you sort of watched any? Have you studied any? Uh, I tried to watch that one that went into a complete uh, infantile tantrum <laughs> between the you know the minor parties to be done. Yeah. Right. So you had yeah. Seymour, uh, Marama Davidson, uh, who was there? Winston Peters and uh, who else? Party, party. Debbie, uh, Debbie. Debbie. Yeah. Debbie yeah, Nareva Packer. Oh, gosh. Mm. That that was a very, very hard watch. God help us, <laughs> Again. honestly. Again. It's, it's like children. Again, thank you for doing that because I, I didn't. Um, um, watch it but i did listen to bits of the was it the younger sort of leaders debates um i didn't watch that one where there was lee donahue was speaking he was the only male on the panel and it was clear that the females on the panels whoever they were i know chloe chloe Swarbrick was one um they just couldn't you'd wonder if they had any represent you know wanted to even represent woman lee seemed to be the only person sticking out for woman on that panel so God knows where the rest of them are thinking. Well, I heard uh, the president of the National Council for Women, uh, Susan Manning, I could have the name wrong, on the Advancing Agenda 2030 conference the other day online. Mm. And she mentioned that uh, for women, climate change is the biggest issue. I nearly fell off my chair, seriously. Mm. But it it just seems, again, the same themes done, one for all, all for one, all aboard the climate uh, gravy train. And it is it is a gravy train. When we look at where the money is going, what is happening, and the news that has come out 
of the United Nations General Assembly Conference a fortnight back now. It was all about the next step needs to be climate finance. We had these leaders there of nearly 200 countries taking stock of being halfway through the 2030 you know, goal because they launched these 20, these 17 SDGs in 2015. They're taking stock halfway in 2023. And it was all about climate finance. We had the Prime Minister of Barbados, was it? Yeah, talking about the fact that, you know, you're richer countries, you owe us. You've the, you're the ones who've caused everything from more thunderstorms to more hurricanes to more rain to everything. Even though IPCC, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, itself cannot find signals for so many things. When I say signals, I mean conclusive directions that they can say, right, rain is heading up, Th thunderstorms are increasing in number. In so many of these uh, spheres, they cannot find a signal, but yet the signal from other countries is, you owe us, give us billions, literally. And they are talking of billions, hundreds of billions every year that needs to be put towards uh, climate finance. And yet, the news from uh, countries like England last week, you have one council has declared bankruptcy. Moody's, the international rating agency, has warned that uh, there is nearly 20 other British councils that are expected to fail and they owe billions of pounds in debt. The Birmingham City Council, there's been a financial meltdown there. And what what else is going to, are we going to face? It is some days, it's like you watch this freight train to disaster and you just like yeah just keep it, wondering what's coming next well you know i know that after 100 billion a year of climate finance pledges through the countries and that hasn't been met with action i gather that the uh the 2023 stock take as you talked about um only 15 percent uh achievement on the sdgs to date according to whoever's auditing that mm. um but you know you can't have councils, no matter where, even in New Zealand and Southland, spraying themselves over all types of business and where they have no business is what I should say, where they have no business. They need to get back, as I've always said, to their core businesses, do the those right and stop you know, mortgaging their ratepayers' futures with all these dreams and schemes that clearly um, are putting councils into debt i mean i i complained to you the other day about the state of our roads in the district council and you told yeah, me to the floods um, after the floods yeah. it was uh, yeah it was pretty and i i keep saying it has to be back to the three r's be mm. it education reading writing arithmetic mm. be it councils rates roading mm. rubbish the three mm. r's that is yeah. it but we seem to try to be everything to everyone and most of these are very noble ambitions we want a food sovereignty plan we had the same echoes that I hear at work are the same ones that I heard that day at the UN conference. What does food sovereignty plan mean? Don? I, I don't know. That means um, producing enough for your own boundaries and perhaps doesn't mean stopping exports. Imagine that for New Zealand. <laughs> I don't know. Food sovereignty, be in control of your food source, I imagine. And we had um, the Kapiti Coast, the Kapiti Coast councillor also talking at the UN conference about we need a food sovereignty, sovereignty plan. We need to be pricing farm emissions. She also took a, uh, 
spoke about spatial planning and how, you know, with climate change and spatial planning, how you manage your space, how you say create uh, different uh, zones of living here and working there and all of this. It is, it's amazing to see how the pieces are, of the puzzle are fitting together and the linchpin of all of this is climate. Yep, I know that uh, when we first started the show six months ago, you were a bit cynical when I said the ultimate um, you know, <laughs> part of our program will be climate change. And I imagine the producers were very concerned about how we've dominated our discussion in six months with climate change, but it is all pervasive. It is everywhere. And of course, the, the gravy train is is all about. Uh, I I listened to, is it Sophie Hansford or Hanford? from mm -hmm. I think the Cavity Council or, or Council in Wellington and um yeah Greta Mark too just so so out of touch with realism. I I you know got a got a reviewed she's got a right to express her view but yes, she she's is. got a she's got she's managed to make a lot of noise as a youngster and she's managed to um have people encourage her to say have more noise um yes, at so this age. Sophie was the yeah. founder of the school strike for climate yeah. at age twelve. Yeah. Yeah, but we've even got a lawyers, a group, a group of lawyers in New Zealand fighting on their side. I mean, I call it prostitution. Sorry, that's a word that might might offend people, but these people are just prostitutes for a cause, and uh, it's about money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the lawyers. It's about money. It ain't about the um, environment. It's about no. money, and and. Um, Coming up with a quote I used today, uh, what was it? I quoted it um, in an earlier interview that we're going to play later. It said, it's A.S. Puskin uh, quote, if there should happen to be a trough, there will be pigs. I think I need to repeat that as often as possible. It's quite significant, don't you think? That, that's quite a, quite a gem, that one, Don. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think at this at this point, to lighten the mood, we should uh, get to our first guest. Yeah, why not? And wasn't he a, a hard case? Um, Roger. It's, it's Roger Beatty from Banks Peninsula. Um, he had a hell of a job keeping his voice together uh, for an hour or 50 minutes, but we got him there. He's a, um enviropreneur from, as I said, Banks Peninsula. He was on TV years ago on Country Calendar, he and his wife, a late wife, sadly. Um, but he was also colloquially known as Mr. Weka Woo. So he farms Weka. He harvests um, kelp. He's got pit island sheep. Uh, he does blue pearls. I mean, the guy doesn't know when to stop. Um, yeah, now he, he puts in a hard day's work and he gave Don and me some time very kindly yeah. at the end of a very long day. Yeah. 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 And he, and he, he, he links property rights to environmentalism. And that's the key. Um, with Roger. So look, yeah, after the break, we'll come back with Roger Beatty. Sit back and relax. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. 
from listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio, Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet. Great to have your company this morning. Uh, we've also got the company of a hard case, a uh, hard case from Banks Peninsula. He calls himself an enviropreneur. I call him perhaps an eco-anarchist. Uh, he's into regenerative and organic agriculture. He's into uh, seaweed harvesting, blue pearl um, culturing, and many more things. So we welcome to Greenwashed, Roger Beatty. Good to see you, Roger. Hello. Yeah, so you've got a lot on your resume, a lot. Uh, where will we start? Should we start right at the beginning, uh, where you were born? And your dad, I gather, was an inventor, and it's probably where you got your verve for um, being inventive yourself. Would that be right? That's true. You know, my father was the um, the brains behind uh, BD insulators which he started in uh, 1959, and um, he had, I think when he died, he had had 50 patents to his name. So he was always coming up with better ways of doing things. Hmm. So where was that from? It was I, I, I sort of have a recollection you told me, and I have known Roger for about 20 years, uh, somewhere up Kaikoura way, was that? Yes, was that right? yeah, no, my father was managing a farm in Seddon, the Haldens, and he developed the insulators there. And then 10 years later, he bought a property in Kaikoura and um, and carried the business on, and it just grew and grew. Mm. And so for listeners, when we talk about insulators, we're talking about insulators for electric fencing, um, which actually, uh, as a farmer myself, uh, Electric fencing revolutionised New Zealand's grazing systems, um, made New Zealand a much smarter, you know, to be able to effectively subdivide paddocks and sell graze and um, graze better, uh, not only winter crops, but through the summer as well, uh, revolutionised New Zealand as much as I would say the quad bike did. Uh, well, in fact, more than the quad bike. Um, so we're, we're, we're grateful for people like Roger's dad. Now, Roger... Your formative years, you're, again, a bit of a rebellious sort of character, I think. You just wanted to get out and make a buck, and you ended up on Chatham Islands pretty quickly, I gather. Yes, I, well, I, I was, uh, after school, I worked on the farm like lots of lads do, and figured out after about a year that I was um, not going to take over the farm anytime soon. So I went to university for a year. And then instead of sitting finals, I went on a sharing course and um, learned to share. And then about a month later, an advert appeared in the paper, in the press, for an experienced sharer. <laughs> and since I was the only um, person to apply for this job on the Chathams, I got the job and fell in love with the Chathams. Yeah, and it didn't do you badly over the next sort of 15, 20 years either. But let, let's talk about the Chathams for a moment. Um, what, 800 k's off the east coast of New Zealand, um, very isolated. 
uh, sort of three or four main islands, I recall. Is that, is that right? And quite hard to get into. You just can't yeah. rock up in a boat and expect to get off anywhere. Yeah, two main islands. Um, Chatham Island's about the same size as Banks Peninsula. And Pitt Island is about 15,000 acres. So I spent about 18 months on Pitt and about 15 years on main Chatham Islands. Yep. And there's some, um, I, in part of your, your discussion, I see on, on Google searches, uh, you mixed with names like the Tuanui's and uh, and others, and I recall those are very much Chatham Island names. Um, is is Roger Beatty's name etched in the, in the rocks over there? <laughs> well, my nicknames probably are. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, tell us what a what what would a nickname be? Would it be something like Mister pa- Mister Power, Orange Ruffy, oh. Dollar? Oh. Um, you know, there there were quite a few nicknames, and everyone, um, you know, on the Chathams was a bit of a character, and the the more character you had, the more nicknames you had, and I I unfortunately had a few. Right, but you know, I've only been to the Chathams once, and what I observed was you work hard, you play hard, and you can make a lot of money because uh, there's not a lot of opportunity to spend your money over there. Um, so you have to bring it back to the mainland, and clearly you've done that. Uh, but but on the on on the Chathams, your your main reason for being was what power diving and power diving was where I made my money. Yeah, right, right, and and so. Coming back to the mainland, um, you bought some properties and you also managed to bring back some of the wild or the farmed and wild sheep from from Pitt Island and you've grown a flock of quite alternative-looking animals compared to what New Zealand used to have as uh, the standard flock of robins. Well, um, in the first few years that I was on the Chathams, I... I had a contract to cull um, wild sheep on Pitt Island, and um, I culled about three and a half thousand wild sheep over about a, an eighteen-month period. And towards the end of that project, I thought, "By hell, these sheep are tough." Every single you hoggett had a lamb. There was virtually no fly strike. They were competing against 500 pigs, lots of skewer gulls, and, um, you know, they were being shot, yet they were very, very healthy. So when we bought a farm on Banks Peninsula, we, um, we flew 10 out, and then I bred the numbers up from there. You just flew 10 out and you bred up to a couple of thousand. <clears throat> well, we bought we bought more as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, when you're keeping everything and not selling anything, the numbers breed up quite quickly. <laughs> yeah, like like, uh, like Uh We'll get onto that in a minute. Um, but just, just staying with the wool side of this for a minute, um, your reason for, or and the sheep and the, and the Pitt Island sheep, your reason for doing that was their hardiness, their um, resilience in terms of the environment they're in. You brought them back to the Banks Peninsula, and you farm them in a um, 
uh, in a manner in a way that you would deem organic or regenerative and you find that they don't need much in the way of animal remedies is that how i understand it to be um i'm an anti-vaxxer when it comes to sheep <laughs> right so, um <laughs> we haven't vaccinated an animal in 30 years mm. and you don't need to Yep. What about antibiotics? No antibiotics? What are antibiotics? There you go. There's the answer to that. And uh, and no no uh, artificial anthelmintics, I imagine. No, 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 none. So the ultimate easy care farm. Now, the the key thing for me to understand and for, for listeners perhaps is the profitability of a farm like that. Uh, effectively, you market under your own brand, I assume? Yes, we are. Well, I'm lying here or sitting on a couch and you can see this blanket. This is mm. this is one of our wild products mm. from our wild sheep. Yep. It's yep. Um, 50% Pit Island wild sheep, 25% possum, 25% merino. And it's, um, here's a dog here that you can't keep off this blanket. <laughs> That's a good advert. Look, I've, I've and, had a... And dogs know better than humans. <laughs> I can vouch for the product. Uh, I've had a, um, a set of uh, wild socks and uh, they were the go-to socks on a cold winter's night in Southland. So uh, don't, this is not to be... Um, a marketing show we shouldn't endorse any product but uh there you go <laughs> but but you have done you have endorsed to me and uh for listeners yeah. this is wild with a y w-y-l-d is the brand uh, but uh going on to further interest you didn't just get the sheep off uh onto banks peninsula you also dabbled in wicker and along with it came a whole battle with doc in fact the, the first article i ever saw on you roger was the one that says conservation kills and uh, a couple of weeks ago we had another guest out here jerry ekoff and his property in central otago made tells me for a very long time bore the sign dock where land goes to die so shall we go on your battle with dock there please okay well um funnily enough going back sort of 35 years ago i i worked quite closely with um, the wildlife service, which were the people before DOC. And mm -hmm. um, I was um, pretty active with helping things like the, the um, Black Robin program. I, mm -hmm. you know, I was only a, main, a minor influence on that, but it, it was so significant that they took five black robins and now they've got hundreds. And just being in and around those people is very inspiring, you know, to be able to get a breed that was almost extinct and then bring them back from the brink. You know, those people were exceptional. You know, the Geordie Mermans of this world are just amazing people. And it gets into your blood. And, you know, Weka was one of those things on the Chathams. Weka are uh, everywhere. In fact, Weka were 
<coughs> taken to the Chathams in 1905 um, for grass grub control because there were no weka on the Chathams. And they died out on the mainland on the east coast of the South Island in about the 1930s. And it's Doc's policy to repatriate all native species back to their home range. And I thought, well, this will be easy. We, we built New Zealand's first large predator-proof reserve and applied for a permit to transfer and to hold weka. And initially, it was relatively easy. But by the time we got to the, like, third the next time we, we applied, it became really difficult. So what changed from the first time to the third time, Roger? Um, Doc got more political. Um, Naitahu got involved. Um, and, you know, there were just people that were opposed to private conservation. And I believe that there are a large number of people within Doc that would rather have species die out than have them saved privately. That's a terrible thing to say, but I think it's true. And yet yeah. you spoke so well about uh, the uh, outfit, uh, I've forgotten the name, before Doc, the conservation people you work with, you were all praised for them a moment ago, but Doc now... Well, well so they, were, they were exceptional people. Um, the Wildlife Service was the hardest government job to secure. They only selected about three or four per year, and you had to be unbelievably good to become a wildlife service officer. And they worked them hard, but they were bloody good at doing what they were doing. Yeah, and so um, what what has changed? Doc became established. Uh, there was activism on the fringes from, you know, and I, and I have no... Um, derogatory comments to make about the activist organizations uh that everyone has their right to uh, an opinion and their activism uh but you had the likes of forest and bird fish and game uh and others uh on the fringes did they make it uh that doc became seriously politicized did they sort of encourage that politicization and therefore less of the uh free enterprise that you're talking about because i know you're big on um uh, private property rights uh, are generating the best or as good conservation out outcomes in this in the in the preservation of say an endangered species, and you seem to have been um, obstructed. So, yeah, something changed, didn't it, Roger? Something changed. Well, I think there were always people who were um, uh, negative on private conservation, but. You know, it's okay to have people arguing the opposite case. But when it gets politicised and then they change policies and it becomes government policy not to support private conservation, hmm. that's when it's bad. 
Mm. And, you know, outfits like, as you said, Forest and Bird, those outfits, um, you know, are, are not market-oriented people. They're not farmers. They're not fishermen. They're not property rights owners. They have no idea the way, the way the real world works. And, you know, one of the things I've said for quite some time is no farmed species has ever died out. And, and we need to be farming those species that are suited to farming. And, mm. and weka are perfectly suited to farming. They have, we've had up to 17 from one pair in a year, and you can farm a pair on a quarter-acre piece of land. So you don't need a lot of land. And I've worked through the numbers and you can make, you can gross as much money farming weka on what I think are realistic um, selling prices. You can compete with dairy. In fact, you can do it alongside dairy. It's crazy, you know. Why aren't we farming weka? Weka are one of the tastiest birds you've ever come across. And so I was going to ask you that, what is the taste like? <clears throat> well, it's sort of a um, it's sort of a bit like lamb, a bit like non-greasy mutton bird, a bit like tasty chicken, um, a bit like duck, but not as strong. It's it's moorish. You know, you can't eat just a little bit of weka. One of the great things about feasts on the Chathams, whether it's a tangi or a hui or a wedding or whatever, there's always crayfish, power, blue cod and weka on the menu, you know, a la carte, you know, or smorgasbord and... Um, the weka is, no matter how much is there, is always the first thing to go. Well, I haven't tasted any myself, but uh, keen, to, keen to get some one day, um, Roger. So the hurdles that are still a bit, still around, uh, What what is the obstructions today to continuing this quest of yours to perhaps get weka into the commercial? Uh, uh, we what? need to... Um, change the head people in dock. We need farming type people. You know, New Zealand has the world's worst record for um, bird species being lost, um, yet we have the world's best record for looking after fisheries. And they're both managed in the opposite way. Mm -hmm. New Zealand fisheries, no matter which way you measure it, is the healthiest commercial and recreational fisheries in the world. Yet our bird species, we've killed more over the years um, and we've got lots and lots on the endangered list. And in order to save them, we need to get 
closer to business, not further away. So so the reason a lot of the birds died out in New Zealand is through predators, I I, I gather. What's, what's the remedy for, and do you support predator-free New Zealand by 2050? Is that an ambition that's that's useful? And secondly, is it an ambition that's even attainable? It, both. Yes, it is. Um, innovation is fantastic. We've developed a number of traps ourselves. Um, there's probably 50 different traps in New Zealand now for catching stoats and ferrets in particular. They're the two worst. Um, in 10 years' time, there will be an order of magnitude more than that. We will solve the predator problem. Um, you know, there's lots of people working on it. So what's your thoughts about um, potentially gene gene um, manipulation in terms of uh, you know, the mustelid population? Uh, no, or, no need. No need no. for it. So how we're, would... How, how would you get the last predators out of the back blocks of Fiordland um, using traps and people when it's as steep as can be and you can't get to these places? Drones, modern technology, um, tunnel traps, you know, 101 ways. Um, you know, they've got rid of New Zealand leads the world in getting rid of predators on islands. We can do it on a grand scale. And the reason I ask, listeners, is because we've got inventor Roger Beatty here, uh, and heritage of inventors in his family, and yeah, his ideas are the sort of ideas that will solve the problems that uh, clearly we face with regard to predators. Um, yeah, so look, uh, every idea is something that should be investigated. Look, we should move on um, to your next business um the seaweed business and you know the harvesting of kelp and what spurred spurred you on to do that well originally um i was power diving and you know every time i dived in most areas um again there would be less power there than the time before so I got involved with New Zealand's head scientist on power, and he was very keen on reseeding. So we got a big reseeding program organised for the Chatham Islands to put small power back in the ocean. And towards the end of that three-year project, I thought, be quite good to farm some of these. <clears throat> so we put some power in barrels and put them in the water. And in order to feed power, you've got to feed seaweed. So I so I had <laughs> I got permits and licenses to harvest seaweed. And then it went on from there to expanding our power farming operation and and then we um, moved on to selling kelp um, for both human consumption and uh, animals and putting on with crops and stuff so 
it's now a reasonable business, which is great. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, you often hear how um, products from the sea um, make very good elixirs or um, additives to to, um, to products to make uh, for healthy healthy individuals or animals, uh, whatever, or even soils. So good that you got onto that. I mean, I've I've even tried some of your uh, seaweed salt, and it's fine. Um, you know, again, marketing uh, for for your business on the show. Um, there's even there's even a probably what I imagine is the um, is the pinnacle in terms of revenue though, and that is the uh, blue pearl culturing and sales. I imagine that's the that's the primo dollar return business. Would that be right, Roger? Well, it it was. Um, COVID upset that a bit, um, mm. but it's coming back again now. Um, yeah, and no, I we've it's been a good business over the years. You know, it was doing very well up until 2008, and then it crashed for a few years, and then it was building up to COVID, and then that put a dampener on you know pretty much all touristy type businesses. Um, but it's building up again now, which is great. Mm. So how hard is that? Uh, I think I understand a little bit of the process, and you don't have to give away trade secrets. But it's a it's it's quite a finickety sort of um, concept to to and and the success rate to get the ultimate blue pearl is not high, I gather. No, it's the it's the longest culturing of any pearl, and our percentage success rate is the lowest. But on the positive side, they're the bluest of all pearls and they've got the greatest range of colours. So um, when someone wears a blue pearl as a necklace or a pendant, um, the magic is when someone walks past either wearing it or observing it, the colours change um, and it's the play of colours that attracts the eye and because blue colours in particular, blue, greens, um, golds, uh, you know, they are in a, in a sort of a fluid mixture. Um, the eye really likes it. So that's why it works as a jewellery item. So could it be called the um, the sort of opal of the sea or opal of the power? It it has been, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, good that you got onto those sorts of uh, ideas, and uh, you know, I imagine um, I imagine you've got good employees behind you because you can't do this all on your own. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> so how many people do you employ in your business uh we've got about 10 people working in our different businesses right now mm-hmm. and a number of people on contract right, right. very good R- roger since you've been dealing with you know uh, with kelp and other the blue pearl 
the fishing rights and customary fishing rights and all of this, you must have had to deal with politics in that, just like you dealt with it when you got your buff Vekka here. And uh, you've been you've had some very strong views about that since well over a decade ago about customary rights, trumping personal rights, common law rights, and people, in fact, recreational fishers having to give away their rights to in, in return for a privilege by whosoever has been given the customary rights in a particular place, which they may or may not have. Do you care to expand on your views and where do you think things are heading? Are things getting better in that regard or do we still see a lot of uh, ethnicity-based uh, chaos deliberately caused there? Um, yeah, I mean, New Zealand's got an amazing fisheries regime. Um, and funnily enough, it was the quota system that allowed the Sea Lord deal um, to happen, which sorted out Maori commercial fishing rights. And through the Sea Lord deal, Maori ended up with 20% of all the quota, and they've leveraged that. And Maori now own about 50% of all quota. Um, a problem that we've now got is there are certain people within Maoridom that want more politically. And um, with our kelp business as an example, mm. um, there are certain people within Naitahu that are trying to take away our rights to kelp. Yet right. Naitahu has rights of its own. And it's, it's both political and it's personal. Um, so that's, you know, something that I'm affected by. But, you know, there are quite a few things within Maori fisheries now that are a bit of a worry. And one of them is <coughs> that Maori fisheries are quite big businesses. But they're not always run the way that they should be. There's too much um, underhand stuff going on. There's the major problem of the, in economic terms, they call it the principal agent problem. And, and what that is, is that's where the principal of the owners, you know, the Maori people within a tribal group, and the agents are the executives that run the companies. And the executives are running roughshod over the owners. And that is a common theme throughout fisheries, Maori fisheries in New Zealand, and that does not bode well. And that needs sorting sooner rather than later. Which political party is showing the fortitude to is is it a political thing as well as a business thing? I mean, is it is it past the political stage at that point? <clears throat> no, it's it's both both it, it needs exposing, mm -hmm. but 
I'm, you know, I'm sure ACT is the only one that's prepared to do anything um, at this stage, you know, because, you know, David Seymour understands, you know, the, the economic problem and that Maori privilege should not spill over into the general public, you know. There should be no privilege for anybody, mm. regardless of race. Mm. So that's it's a sort of a vexed issue, uh, isn't it? Uh, we've got lots of these sort of crossovers happening now. And um, one thing that I recall um, changing tack a little bit more, uh, you were the first person that um, I was uh, party to uh, sort of being on the sidelines with effectively uh, dealing with significant significant natural areas, SNAs, and um, I assume it was the Christchurch City Council. Now, that was probably 2008. Here we are in 2023, and we now have what was always in the RMA, but it's only recently come to light, um, a concept called SASMs, Sites and Areas of Significance to Maori. And effectively, what you won uh, in well, that period when I was back with you and on the SNA front may now be mean that your whole property could be under a SASM uh, uh, yeah, a, a designation. Have you heard of that in your area? Has it come to light? Uh, that's the first time I've heard that term, but um, there have been sort of significant sites for Maori propping up you know, all over the place on Banks Peninsula. Mm. And my thinking is um, if it's private property um, and it's freehold, um, the council and Maori can go to hell. Mm. They come to your property by your invitation at best. Absolutely. At, at best, with your invitation only. And uh, that's my ethos too. I know it's not a common ethos, but, <laughs> you know. Gentlemen, I, I, I'm sort of feeling left out here. Can you give a bit of a back history there of what happened? Why were you two in Christchurch <laughs> at that court case that you're referring to in 2008? Uh, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll give a bit of background there. Um, I had been objecting to... There, there were about four different designations mm. um, on our property. There were significant natural areas. There were coastal protection areas. There were height restrictions. And there were outstanding natural landscapes. Mm. And um, I had objected to those but got nowhere. And then they'd put our rates up. <clears throat> and I, I objected to our rates going up. And the argument was that because they'd put all these four restrictions on our land, that the land was worth less now than it was. Mm-hmm. And yep. what what we know about business and economics is that um, assets like land 
are worth the discounted, the future discounted cash flows. That's that's the way that you, in a purest sense, need to value any asset. What is the sum of the future discounted for borrowed money cash flows going out, say, 20, 30 years? And that gives you a figure of what it's worth. Now, the thing about land in particular, rural land that I'm talking about, is that we're only getting, like with sheep and beef, uh, say a, a 1 to 3% return on investment. And part of the reason for that is that there are a whole lot of things that we don't know about in the future that will be a cash flow, whether that's subdivision or forestry or ecotourism, that can increase the income per hectare or per farm greater than what it is now. And that uncertainty gets factored into the capital price. Now, if you take away that uncertainty of being able to do different things in the future, that means that the value can only be on what you're currently doing. If you're stopping people doing new things, like the things that we were being stopped from doing were putting in new tracks, putting in forestry over a certain size, um, doing ecotourism, doing anything other than sheep and beef. So my argument was, and I made the argument, that the valuation on our land must be based on the return from sheep and beef only. So I argued that our land at the time was worth, um, rateable value was $3 But from an economic point of view, it was only worth a million because I'd taken away our future potential income streams. And I said to Don, um, I'm, what, what, what do you think, or I asked Don, what do you think I'll get as a um, reduction in rates? And he said, oh, best I've seen is 10%. I said, look and learn, Don. And um, <laughs> I got a 15% reduction in rates. <laughs> Gosh. It, it was the funniest morning of my life. Well, I shouldn't call it funny. It was serious business. But um, at morning tea time, we broke for, for a cuppa. And uh, I said, gee, Roger, you've got them on the ropes. It looks like your job's done. He said, he said I haven't finished yet. So by lunchtime, he'd got a lot more. <laughs> but see, that that comes right back to the ethos that I keep talking about in the show, um, Jasper, that it, private property rights and the ability to, to maintain your authority over your own property is fundamental in this society. And sadly, it's being taken. And it's and Roger, I'd have to say in the ensuing 15 years, it's got much worse, much worse where the opportunity, opportunity, the potential opportunity is being taken from private property owners. So that's, um, that's true. 
I'll, I'll just tell a little story about how I got my message across. Um, it, part of the argument was about ownership rights and use rights. And they were taking away not my ownership rights, but my use rights. Yes. And mm. use rights are more important than ownership rights. And I said to the council lawyer, I said, um, look, can I borrow your pen, please? And he sort of looked at me slightly sheepishly. Anyway, borrowed his pen. And I said, oh, this is a nice pen. I said, in my experience, lawyers always have a nice pen. I said, do you own this pen? And he said, yes. And I said, well, I now own the use rights. And I shoved it in my pocket. Well, it started to go nuts. He completely lost it. <laughs> and that is it. It's a slippery slope once property rights start going. And we are seeing this between SNAs and SASMs, the latest thing. There's something the other always coming on. And I think, I, I don't know how you viewed the last three years, uh, Roger. But if I was to look back myself, we've just completely lost it over the last three yeah. years between COVID and every, the climate nonsense and all of that's going on. It seems any sort of common sense has just gone out of the window and people are so overwhelmed that most of them just, just give up. Well, we are going to have a change in government and a lot of this nonsense will go, but it's really important that those people who champion property rights and understand their significance keep having their voice being heard, which is why your organisation is so important. Mm, it is, it is, uh, Roger. But, um, you know, I know you and I have been at the on the uh, right of centre politically for years. Uh, it's very hard to find anyone that talks about property rights in a sentence uh, in this current electoral cycle uh, um, campaign. Um, it is disappointing. It's like property rights are a turnoff to people when they're a fundamental tenant uh, of uh, tenant of our society. I don't get it. And I, I watched a, um, a video from an American organisation today. They're talking about uh, 30 and 30. That is 30% of America into conservation Probably. estate by, by 2030. I mean, we have that in New Zealand now, so perhaps we're going to go for 50 by 50, which is another ambition in uh, in the state. So, yeah, this stuff doesn't stop unless we stop it. And, and currently I'm not seeing quite the enthusiasm to do that as, as we need to, need to have, but you're, you're confident we're going to get a change and are you confident that, um, that, there can be enough pressure brought to bear on the on whoever is in there, if it's ACT or, and National combined, to make these changes? Because, as I said, I don't hear anyone talking this language. Well, I don't trust National. Um, they've taken, as far as I can tell, all reference to property rights out of their, you know, constitution. Um, you know, there are other parties that are talking property rights apart from Act, but the reality is, you know, will these other parties reach the threshold 
um, and ACT has certainly never wavered from its um, property rights support. Mm. John, your thoughts? I I must say that I'm a bit cynical where ACT is concerned and Don knows my reasons, but but what are your thoughts on this, John? Well, uh, I know what their five freedoms are and uh, you would think that they would be shouting them from the rooftops every day, but I'm not hearing that this campaign, which is a bit disconcerting, Roger. Um, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong because uh, we've got to have a political party that holds up these fundamentals. So uh, for a civil society to exist. And uh, I'm very concerned that uh, our ability to maintain authority over our property is diminishing by the year. And it, it your local councils are doing their level best uh, to, to make that speed up, not slow down. So, yeah, we've got some problems. Um, Roger, what's, you know, we could we could talk politics, but generally we're we're trying not to be too biased here. Um, uh, clearly, clearly we are. What's next for Roger Beattie? What's he got on the horizon? I mean, he's he's been talking all day. I can tell because his voice is. We'll be lucky to get the full hour, and I reckon his voice is kind of kind of crack. But um, what's next for Roger Beattie? Um, I've got a couple of projects on the go. Um, I've I've developed a a wind turbine um, that is almost invisible. So that solves um, one of the problems that wind turbines have. And I've also developed a way of growing intertidal species, um, nori, the the seaweed that you have um, around sushi, Mm-hmm. and um, Pacific oysters, I can grow them offshore. So the potential there is um, very significant. So I'm I'm going to be working on that shortly. I'm just in the process of sorting a few other things out first. <laughs> well, your energy is, um, is palpable, I can tell you, and the Listeners, we we obviously do this via Zoom, and you don't see Roger, but he's grinning from ear to ear as we do this this topic, and uh, and and he's probably had all day on the phone because I know how his business will be working. He won't be um, he won't be idle at a, for a moment. There's um, there's a lot in what you've said, but in narrowing it right down, property rights, economics, environment, the branding, the marketing, all the stuff works just fine when you're allowed to uh to do it the way it needs to be done uh you know what is the recipe for success for New Zealand uh we've clearly got a massive um government debt let alone private debt now um what's success look like for New Zealand for Roger Beatty in the next 10 years um smaller government uh, mm. government getting out of the sunlight, um, you know, celebrating entrepreneurial success, um, giving people a break, um, not trying to pick winners, um, having a level playing field, and um, just enjoying life and not being envious, um, you know, celebrating those that do 
wonderful and different and exciting things. Well, not that's writing the them down in red tape. Yeah, that's a prescription for the future that we can all subscribe to, surely. Uh, the fact that what I note in, in farming sense is so many people want to put you into a peas, be peas in a pod. They want to clone you. And uh, it's the last thing we should should be allowing in our businesses. But that's no doubt how it works with cooperatives. They love to sort of pigeonhole you into a, into a little funnel. So, um, Roger, that's a great um, way to perhaps end this interview, uh, your prescription for the next 10 years. I'd implore people that have listened to you to go and perhaps search a country calendar uh, show that you and your dear late wife uh, featured on uh, a few years back. How many years? Perhaps six or seven years ago? Uh, no, that was um, 2008. Oh, and, 15. Um, I, yep. I think it was one of the most successful from a, the point of view of um, repeats. It's it's um, shown repeatedly. Um, I think at least twenty times. Right. Well, it was. I recall it well, and it just shows you fifteen years slips by too easily. And um, so, listeners, yeah, go and have a look at that if you want to search it. It'll be there in the Google in the Country Calendar archives. But Roger, um, we're we're happy to have had you on our show at short notice. I'm pleased your voice is held together, uh, and you know. We can only wish people like you all the best for the future because um, New Zealand needs thousands of Roger Beatties. And uh, well, look, thank you very much, Don. Thank and, you both. Well, great to have you on our show, and um, keep in touch. Okay, thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to. Or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back, everybody. Um, hope you've enjoyed that uh, discussion with Roger Beatty. He's... He's a breath of fresh air, a lot of energy in, in his body and mind, and we wish him all the best. And we're very grateful to have had him on um, RCR's Greenwashed. Just remember to give your feedback to 2057 and uh, or write to inbox at realitycheck.radio. And so, Jasper, what's next? What are we going to do now? Shall we? Because I, I have been, as you know, uh, since I don't have much of a life, I've enjoyed listening to various uh, leaders speaking at uh, the United Nations General Assembly in New York earlier this month, earlier in September, 18th to 20th of September. And uh, let's listen to Nanaya, part of her speech. She gave about a 20 minute, but mm. I, think, I think it's pretty telling what uh, she speaks about. So let me see if we can find that. And so this is Nanaya Mahota. And Incidentally, is it just me, but do you think, Don, that the same minister holding a portfolio for local government and foreign affairs, there's something wrong there? It is a bit weird. Uh, but of course, we have been going through this process uh, towards the three waters or 10 waters or whatever you like about it. Affordable where, waters. Uh, affordable waters, where uh, the linkages with the United Nations um, directives uh, seem to have come 
back to New Zealand and inside this uh, this new concept about affordable waters. So look, I think it's all planned. It is odd, but it's been planned. Um, but by the way, mm-hmm. Nanaya Mahuda, having listened to her just prior, uh, this is the most professional uh, presentation presentation from her I've ever heard. So, um, you know, give her a bit of ups for that, but um, the content might be a bit different. Let's yeah. see. Let's go. National income. Tools such as the development of multi-dimensional, multi-dimensional vulnerability index offer opportunities to respond to the realities of those who are most vulnerable to external shocks, such as small island developing states. Sustainable development will only be achieved if the international community delivers on its commitments to those who are experiencing the violent realities of climate change. Climate change is the greatest existential threat facing the planet, our planet. A stable climate is essential to a stable future. New Zealand is committed to playing its part in global efforts to combat the triple planetary crisis of climate change, pollution and biodiversity loss. No country is immune to the impacts of climate change, which are, a real, which are real and happening now. The countries of the Pacific are on the front line and are already experiencing irreversible loss and damage. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has sent a very clear message that the world is not on track to meet, to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. With the first global stock take of the Paris Agreement, COP28 later this year is an opportunity for course correction. Limiting warming to 1.5 degrees is vital to achieve our shared development goals. Every increment of a degree and every tonne of emissions matters. We have a narrow and rapidly closing window to secure a sustainable and livable future for all of us and our children. We call on all countries, especially major emitters, to align their actions with limiting the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees, and this means committing to a global phase-out of fossil fuels. Aotearoa New Zealand is taking ambitious action to support the transition to low emissions economies, to climate resilient agriculture and to sustainable trade policies. Domestically, we are transitioning to a low emissions and climate resilient future and working to meet our 1.5 degrees aligned nationally determined contribution. We have committed to reducing our emissions by 50% below 2005 levels by 2030. Our first emissions reduction plan sets out the actions we will take to achieve our first emissions budgets on a pathway to our 2050 target. We're investing in Pacific resilience, mobilising climate finance and supporting Pacific partners to prepare and respond to climate-driven events. At least half of our 1.3 billion quadrupled climate finance commitment will go to the Pacific. At COP27, we stood with the Pacific on the priority issue of loss and damage. $1.3 billion. Oh, but didn't she say only half that would go to the Pacific? <laughs> so, you know, if, if we constantly hear the word emissions and climate and all no. of this, this is this is our representatives going to the United Nations General Assembly in New York yep. and uh, declaring how well we are doing. 
what is a climate resilient future what's we are transitioning wow. she says and i have listened to the whole speech at the end she refers to you know building back better and a reset and all of this so so go look for nanaya's speech uh, listeners if you like to you know listen to the full 19 odd minutes but it's all there those buzzwords and ending fossil fuels we are on the front lines sustainable development who who is the united nations why are we presenting a report card to them have we presented a report card that our ram rates are up something like 700% our crime is up retail crime is more than quadrupled are we presenting a report card that 60% of the kids who pass out at age 16 only 60% have a basic a uh, sense of writing reading arithmetic the remainder 40% fail to achieve those basic standards are we talking about the record high inflation unaffordable housing prices why sh- why is everything about climate and emissions honestly future generations uh, livable world if my current generation or even me myself i don't have a livable future do i really care about future generations don or am i being selfish here No, you do care about future generations and you haven't shared a hundred billion dollars worth of new borrowing uh through your country like Grant Robertson has and and at the same time he's done that uh you've you've just alluded to a whole lot of things that we should be worried about um and yet we're more worried about telling the world that we're going to be so virtuous and so so much better than everybody else uh while we've got ourselves so indebted i mean and we share money into the south pacific like we're, we're actually now the the uh patri or matriarch for the pacific islands it just makes no sense to me and of course if you realize in this last week john kerry the secretary of state or special presidential envoy on climate now said at a new york summit probably the same one just subtly put it in that the aspiration now is we're heading to something like a 2.4 to 2.5 degree uh planetary warming over the next 100 odd years <laughs> that, that is down from 3 to 4 degrees and not a murmur in the new zealand media not a murmur seriously taking the edge off everything still pushing the 8.5 percent uh RCP which is representation concentration pathway so risk rating effectively um not a murmur in New Zealand but you know what I saw in the face of the uh the minister doing during that address and the tone of her output what was it seemed like a last hurrah uh we've got we we've lost we haven't got people across the line New Zealand's looking a bit isolated uh uh and we really just have to say our last words because really the northern hemisphere countries like the UK, Sweden, Germany and other countries have just moved on. They have I you th- look at Rishi Sunak the noises coming from there you look at the mm. noises coming from Germany yet done so this address was uh 2 weeks back mm. 18 to sometime between 18 to 20th September we followed it up on the 20th of September so within a week of the uh, new york summit this united nations and we did a domestic one mm. good children the first ones of the block heavy are and we are going to show how we are going to be pushing towards it and did any of our politicians speak up any of these parties no no one no one silence you know? yep 
but yeah, that's where we are. We've um, we've we've bought into this uh, very yeah at a high level, and it's spread through all this community. The community is in serious trouble financially. This whole economy, and yet we're still talking about doing this virtual virtuous um, aspiration of um, the existential existential threat. Uh, clearly, it's been over egged, and I think mm-hmm. there's egg on their face coming. It's interesting, though, how she says that the Pacific or the Blue Pacific mm-hmm. is at the forefront of the existential threat of climate mm-hmm. change. And then uh, two days ago, we had Alan Bollard, the ex-Reserve Bank uh, governor, speaking about how New Zealand needs to be ready for hundreds of thousands of climate refugees. Are they in, dare I say, lockstep? Well, I think so. There's a, it's pretty obvious I've been in lockstep around this sort of stuff for eons. You saw it first. Um, you, know, you, you certainly picked it up before I did. Uh, but, you know, the frenzy that was created by uh, Antonio Guterres talking about global boiling a couple of months ago um, uh, clearly, to me, said they are de- getting desperate. They are getting desperate. They know that countries like New Zealand can't do what oh. they say they're going to do. Uh, they know they've sold us a lie on, on the agricultural emissions. There's a whole lot of things that are wrong here. And my view is that, you know, to use their slogans, uh, we need a reset to reset the Great Reset. <laughs> I I am not sure I quite followed that, but God, you you said that out with straight. Yep, <laughs> with a straight face, I said that. Look, I'm slogans haven't worked, have they? Uh, and we're slowly and well, we're slowly breaking them down. They probably did work for you know 10, 15 years, but. When the country's pushed into a corner financially, there's no way this country is going to be showering money, if if I had any say in it, uh, to to Pacific countries to do more than just the general aid work we've done in the past for the climate resilience stuff or or having um, mass migration to New Zealand. None of this is sensible. They don't care. They, they simply, don't care. They simply don't care. Well, and of course, we've had um, the constant indoctrination by the likes of Al Gore uh, building his army of of young sycophants around the world uh, to tell the story. So, you know, there is there is a fairly deep swamp to to break down. Um, so many people have had their had their toes in this water, so so to speak, and have 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 been spreading the story uh, in a way that the likes of Al Gore wants. Now, none mm-hmm. of the tipping points that Al Gore talks about, uh, as far back as I can remember, have ever materialised. Not one. Not one. So isn't it interesting how, as I've just pointed out, John Kerry just took the edge off the temperature um, uh, numbers that have been bandied about for eons and has now just reduced that um, by a degree and a half, so to speak. So, well, a yeah, about a de- about a degree and a half. Mm. And these same people, because you know this doesn't stack up, the indoctrination machine has gone on in the background. If uh, listeners, if you have not heard of Al Gore or of his climate reality cops, or as John told me, it is core, <laughs> but the uh, I I the Indian Minister is going to call it 
the climate corpse, C O R P S. Don, I know you're itching to correct me. Please do. No, no, I won't. I won't. Gore's, uh, <laughs> Al Gore's Corps. Um, I don't know. We used to talk about the Army Corps here. I don't know whether that's uh, right or wrong, but you know, you call it corpse, and that's fine by me. Yeah, it's it should actually be corpse, as in literally a corpse. But for now, <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you if you go to Google and search for Al Gore climate cops nz there's this man has been jetting around now for a couple of decades al gore who's mint, made a mint out of you know the climate business training people training a army mm. indoctrinating an army across the world on the he calls it the climate reality project or so on so he came down to brisbane in 2019 at that point al gore named 40 Kiwi apprentices of his uh, global climate change movement. And just a quick Google of uh, Al Gore Climate Training NZ, you come across different people, some of whom are in councils, some of whom are in Toitu, Toitu, which is the our EnviroCare organization. It certifies your net zero businesses. So they talk about how many people are there? Last week, so this is from 2019, four members of our team, Sophia White, Ranja Lidenhammer, Kate, and Bronwyn Cook were honored to attend Climate Reality Project training in Brisbane. We have people, there's other names, Don, any one of them sound familiar to you in New Zealand? Not, not instantly familiar. But... There is an EIT, Eastern Institute of Technology lecturer. Uh, there is someone from Sustainable Queenstown, Esther oh. Whitehead, learning climate leadership skills direct from Al Gore. And in fact, even came across uh, a Pledge Me page from uh, our Green Minister, James Shaw. It seems he crowdfunded his flights <laughs> to go to New York to train with Al Gore way back over a decade ago. So pretty amazing. All these people have come out of the same school of climate indoctrination. The oh, Al Gore. Yeah. And it says in uh, in this um, article that there's uh, we are a cohort of delegates joining 19,000 leaders who have already gone through the training school since 2006. He ran his first leadership course with only 50 attendees back in 2006. So 19,000 more. Now, you know, that is significant. Uh, the point we need to make to our listeners is that's what we've been talking about for the last six months. This swamp, this the tentacles of all of this stuff are deep. It's like a mass indoctrination club, um, you know, selling a story. Now, if the story was honourable and, and had integrity, you wouldn't need to do this, would you? We'd all just um, accept that we needed to do something. Uh, to to fix emissions if that was an issue. Well, clearly, there's a lot of people don't think there's anything to see here. And in fact, as I talked about earlier, um, that HAPA uh, tour in Australia talking about the CO2 and why it's a, the most useful gas we can basically have, it's a fundamental for the greening of the planet. Um, it's been demonised and, uh, and yet... It's taken a while to get that sort of storyline back in back in play. I mean, these nineteen thousand and all the other people add into that all the bureaucrats 
uh, all the politicians, there's tens of thousands more telling the story. And it, re- it reminds me of Mao's Red Army, honestly. And that's that's a far fetched uh, comparison, I know. But seriously, they talk of tens of thousands of people that Al Gore has trained hmm. over well over a decade now. And if you look up the Climate Reality Project, they talk about, uh, he says, nearly 50,000 changemakers working for just climate solutions worldwide. I see at least two names on a quick Google in New Zealand who are currently in one regional council. This is a city council. Yeah, I won't take names, but there are people there. Now, my question is, if one of them was trained in 2006, the other in 2019, what? how will they update themselves on, say, this year's uh, revelations of, uh, you know, latest research? How are you going to update yourself? Are you going to be stuck in what Algo told you in 2006, in 2019? Are you going to be pushing the same story? Or how are you going to stay abreast of emerging research? Because... If there's one thing I know, it's science is not like, you know, Chaucer that I learned during my lit degree, that it doesn't change. It's it's millennia just gone, and there it is. You know, the Canterbury Tales. This is science. It changes all the time. It evolves. How are you staying abreast? Perhaps what you know is not right, but you are pushing ahead with the same. How fair is that to the community you serve? Well, it will, as I said before, um, depend on who's putting the trough up. You know, there will be pigs. I'm going to repeat that. It's interesting, though. There will be a uh, there will be a small number of these people that will be mindful enough and and sensible enough to realize they haven't had just all sides of the story. But most of them won't. Most of them will continue with their with their agenda, because they've now all got an agenda to tell a certain story. Um, And that's what we're up against. Those people like me that are skeptical, uh, not in denial about the fact that the climate change is not in denial about greenhouse gases um, and any warming effect they may have, because I've I've studied it. Um, I'm not saying I'm 100% right, but I would like to think that over time, and, and time is now 25 years, we must be getting to a conclusion that is a whole lot more rigorous and robust than just the words that the likes of Nanaya Mahuta put out um, in the United Nations. They're just hollow words. And and you get, you get scientists like Al Gore putting up catastrophic sort of events that he creates. He, he creates images that make it look as if uh, things are catastrophic. Um, yeah, you know, for instance, we're going to have our next guest is going to talk about the coral reef, uh, the Great Barrier Reef. Um, everything was catastrophic over there. Uh, the reef is dying. Clearly, it's not. So, you know, what do you believe I, now? Yeah, how to how to get the truth? If you just look up the website of the Climate Reality Project and you go to our story, the About Us page, it says the Climate Reality Leadership Core. I changed that on was born from the simple belief that everyday people could lead the fight on climate and change the world. This program began in 2006, so nearly two decades Mm -hmm. ago, when 50 aspiring advocates joined Vice President Gore at his barn in Nashville, Tennessee. 
to learn how to share the truth. So not to learn the truth, to learn how to share the truth about the climate crisis just he had in the award-winning, Academy Award-winning film, An Inconvenient Truth. Two decades on, that 50 has grown to nearly 50,000 advocates working together. People come to the Climate Reality Leadership Corps with the desire to make a difference on climate. We give them tools, training, and networking. Isn't it interesting? The 19,000 figure has now magic to 50,000. Because I read that out of of that uh, Amy, or that lady Whitehead's, Esther Whitehead's page talked about, and Crux talked about 19,000, but now we're at 50,000. His his website says, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yep. Incredible how that has morphed into such a big number of change makers. Yeah, as you call it. Okay, well, look, we know they're there. And we know our job is to put the truth in front of people. And, you know, I, you and I are not big enough to, or, or we've got a good enough um, handle on stuff to know when you have to say, sorry, got it wrong. Of but, course. But currently, the way we, I read it, and I shouldn't put words in your mouth, um, we have been sold a pup by our own or own administrators for a long, long time. And worse, as a farmer, farmers have been put under the bus to take the heat off the real side of the story. If they're going to demonize CO2, let's put it all out there for all New Zealand to see what they're really trying to do to you and um, take and the heat is, off farmers. It is not just farmers. Mm. The the methane issue, your mm. landfill costs, you know, they're all going to go up. These uh, high-density buildings, which you may like, I mean, some of you might love to be living in apartments, some, some might not, but like it or not, it's coming. You have those buzzwords like live, work, play in the same place. It is virtually saying that that's, that's where you're going to be, live, work, play. But there is many of us who choose to take a longer commute to work because, you know, we'd love to live out in the country. We don't mind going to town five days a week if the family, kids, pets, whatever you have, they are in the country. But you won't be allowed the choice anymore. Those 15-minute cities and all of that So to think that this is just a rural issue is is uh, short-sighted and to think that it's uh, you know somehow children the climate leadership core is only training adults oh no so last night you know this being the school holidays even though i homeschool i was looking trying to find a science curriculum for my children my daughter is uh, just over 8 now and i wanted a more formal one so went around looking at the new zealand curriculum website uh, NZQAs and uh, Ministry of Education and then somehow Googling came to this houseofscience.nz and there it opens on the SDGs. What are the SDGs? For the House of Science, education is a big contributor to all the global sustainability goals and we want to bring you on this journey. And then there is Malala Yusuf Sharif there. All SDGs come out to education and this website House of Science ends, it says, partner with us to help achieve Agenda 2030. Our science resource kits will help educate students about renewable energy, climate change, future food options. What does that mean? Future food options, water allocation, sustainable fishing, healthy diets, and the list goes on. And they have branches pretty much everywhere. There's not one in Southland. But they seem to have them everywhere else, not further south beyond Christchurch in the South Island. 
And this is what I get to when I'm looking for a science curriculum, a sensible, realistic science curriculum that an eight-year-old can use. And, you know, later my son can possibly grow into that one, who's six now. It is, it's, it's all encompassing. The indoctrination doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. I did think it was humorous when I looked at that uh, website and the map of the South Island sort of missed the Nelson area and most of Southland. So perhaps there is some new science curriculum out there about how to um, alter the the, you know, the New Zealand map. Anyway, I look, Jasper, you do a lot of work in this space. I um, I uh, don't envy um, your job. You, you research and you clearly see the gaps here. Um, you just want a resource that you can educate your daughter from, and it's just not there. It's just not as obvious as it needs to be. No, no. As, as an eight-year-old, you know, I, I want a few that you can just pick up, and these are the core things. And I, I'll ultimately sort of cobble one together from a few resources. But if if you're going to something like a package curriculum, there is it's hard to escape this. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, it is. It is. I was thinking um, as you were talking about that, how I used to um, do a bit of revision when I was at school. I'd just go and buy the little books to to sort of refresh my memory because I wasn't a great student. So uh, I imagine we don't seem to have the bookstores with that sort of, well, not in, in Chicago, I don't think anyway, uh, that we used to have where you could go and get these resources if you couldn't find them, you know, at your school. So um, yeah, look, I'm sorry that you're having a, such a difficulty, but um, I'm, I know you will be tenacious and you will get there. <laughs> <laughs> nah, we're going to get this sorted. That, that's mm. all right. That's mm. my job. I think as a homeschooling parent, it is uh, you. the onus is on you. And I, I often feel sometimes if only there was just, you know, easy, simple curriculums that one can tick off, a comprehensive one. But we, we seem to have very obtuse language. But we'll get there. I know mm. what I studied. And I'm, though I'm getting on, I still remember a wee bit of how we did science when I, <laughs> oh, I have well, to. Yeah. In this next interview, um, listeners, Jaspreet really does show her memory works really <laughs> well. She knows the genus of the word cockroach. It's really and funny. But it is it just sad, John. Shows... It is really sad <laughs> that I, I go back that long back. <laughs> uh, it was great. A great interview. Anyway, um, Soon uh, after the break, we are going to have uh, Professor Peter Ridd on. Now, Peter Ridd, as we'll introduce him anyway, uh, has been under fire in uh, the James Cook University in Queensland, in Townsville, in fact, and his story is quite powerful. So, look, uh, after the break, we'll be back with Peter Ridd. Thank you All for joining best. us this morning. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to RCR, Greenwashed with Jaspreet and Don. And today we have a person that's uh, very well known. Uh, uh, he's had over 100 publications, 35 years experience working in his field, uh, uh, a physicist uh, living in North Queensland and a place called Townsville. His name is Professor Peter Ridd, and we're honoured to have him here today. Clearly, those of us who follow uh, climate policies and, and, and political um, output from Australia, we will know him well. He's been through the mill. He's standing tall for the truth about uh, the condition of, for instance, of the Great Barrier Reef and its coral. 
and many other aspects of science and academia and, and ex- freedom of expression, really, uh, as well. So welcome, Peter. We'd love, we're grateful that you've been able to get on the show with us or have you on the show. Um, North Queensland's a lovely place, but you've had some problems there in the uh, James Cook University and, and your relationship with them over time. Um, and you've had a long relationship with them. Uh, in fact, many since since you were a teenager, effectively. Yeah, I joined James Cook University in 1978, and I was fired from James Cook University <laughs> in 2018, uh, essentially because I was saying that the Great Barrier Reef is in very good shape, and that the thing that is not in good shape is the quality assurance systems used by a lot of the scientists who claim that it's uh, badly damaged. And I was able to prove that, I think, without any shadow of a doubt, which, of course, made things fairly difficult. Uh, And anyway, we ended up at the High Court, which we half won and we half half lost. Uh, And now I'm free from the university system. Well, it's surprising looking at you uh, over a Zoom call. You look surprisingly happy. Um, I remember all the, in those early days on television, I watched you on Outsiders and and, and Sky News and different things. And uh, yeah, clearly you were put under a massive amount of pressure at great cost. And it, while you're, you're talking as if you've had a Pyrrhic victory, um, that is a victory at great cost, uh, you know, how did you get through all that? Because most people would weaken. Well, I, I had the Institute of Public Affairs uh, supporting me, and um, when we decided to go legal, I mean, it was pretty nasty. Uh, we thought there was no no choice. I was either going to get fired or I was going to have to just shut up, and I just couldn't live with that. My wife said, you won't be able to do that. You'll eventually speak out. Uh, so we actually did a, a GoFundMe appeal um, very early on for $100,000, and we got the money in 49 hours. It was quite remarkable how much support there was for people speaking out uh, in academia on these these things where you're really only allowed to say one side of the argument. And that, I think, made a lot of people, including me, but I, we were stuck. We thought, well, we, we might get a 1000 bucks. But to get so much money so quickly, in the end, we, we, we raised... million dollars for the legal challenges i still had to pay another 300 grand out of our pocket but nevertheless 1.5 million dollars from 10,000 um supporters who you know mostly chucked in 100 bucks here and there sort of thing um Mm. that really makes a big difference to your ability to just keep going because you know there's a lot of people who are behind you and you're you're in something that's quite important that people believe in right yeah i know i'm aware there was several new zealanders um put money in your in that pot and uh grateful to see someone like you stand up and at all against the the might of uh perhaps you might say other players and not say i shouldn't call them bigger players but perhaps bigger checkbook players um and so it's something that we need to sort of delve into a bit wider why was it that uh you know your your own employer and and where you were the professor of um, physics uh decided that your output wasn't meeting their code of i mean was the code of conduct too over overbearing that you couldn't uh express yourself fairly even as a as a uh, head of department so to speak 
yes, that's exactly the problem. So I've been working on the Great Barrier Reef for 35 years, looking at the oceanography, the way the water moves, the way sun goes in and heats up the water and maybe causes bleaching, sedimentation, uh, designing instrumentation for monitor, monitoring the reef. So I knew a lot about it. And essentially, I was seeing again and again and again terrible quality assurance. For example, there's a an island about 300 k's down the coast, which is surrounded by coral. And the people were saying, all the coral's gone. And you only need to go there to see that the coral isn't gone. There's a huge amount of coral. And so I said that there's a quality assurance problem that um, needs to be fixed and that, that these people are telling misleading stories because they're not checking their work. Now, that broke the code of conduct because I was actually – um, impugning their integrity as a scientist, and I was. I was saying their quality assurance was hopeless, and there's nothing more insulting than you can say about a scientist that we can't trust your work, right? So there's no doubt that I broke the code of conduct, but on the other hand, I was doing my duty as an academic and a scientist to say, well, there's a terrible problem here, and by the way, that's being used, your work, saying this reef has been destroyed by farmers, by sediment coming off the land, mm. is affecting the farmers in a huge way because of all the legislation. So it wasn't like it was some minor academic argument. This was serious stuff. So in, in, in the end, the High Court battle hinged around, did the code of conduct, which meant that I had to be nice and, and friendly and, and never upset anybody, did that override my right to freedom of speech, academic freedom as an academic? And the High Court ruled in our favour on that. They said there was no doubt that the university was wrong to censure me for that. <laughs> but they said the university was able to get me for talking about the the uh, disciplinary action that they amounted against me, essentially for uh, making public their disciplinary action about their unlawful behaviour. So it was all very strange, all very one of those legal things, but we won on the main point. Yeah. Uh, Peter, there would be others in your team who would be working on the same thing. Were you at that point the only person of holding the opinion that you did, that the barrier reef was in a healthier state? No, certainly not. Um, there's quite a lot of us around, though we tend not to be in academia anymore. Uh, we're definitely in a minority because the whole of academia has exploded with people who think one way. Uh, but one of my um, main collaborators over decades essentially agrees with me on a lot of this, even though he might be worried about the climate change thing. When it comes to a lot of these effects on the Great Barrier, he agrees. So there's plenty of us, um, but we've more or less, uh, to a man, so as to speak, been excluded from the academic world. The universities have really become a very one-sided uh, place. But in the project, uh, and I don't know if I'm using the correct terminology here, the team that would be, you know, tasked with the job of, say, uh, looking at how well or how poorly the reef is doing, were there others who stood by you, who felt that, you know, you were your your credibility was being called into question and what you were saying is uh, right? Uh, oh, yes. There's, there was plenty of um, other Great Barrier scientists who agree that there is a problem. Uh, I mm -hmm. won't necessarily name them because... They they may be you know right at this minute trying to work with the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, and it's mm. very dangerous for them uh, to be able to do that unless you want to take the sort of risk that I ended up being forced to take, um, and you're at the end of your career, which I am. So it wasn't a big deal in some regards because 
you know, retirement was close anyway. But there are them. But on the other hand, there is a huge consensus group, you know, a consensus group which get together and write all the reports for the government and they will always say the reef is completely doomed, it's completely stuffed, despite the fact that, uh, and this is the wonderful thing, since I was five saying the reef is great and there's a quality assurance problem in the science, the reef has in the last two years had record amounts of coral. We've never had more coral on the Great Barrier Reef since records first started in 1985 or 86. So it's essentially proved exactly what I and other people have been saying, that all the doom science about the reef is completely wrong because, you know, we've had all this climate change, bleaching, terrible events. Now we've got more coral than ever. Imagine. And I notice you use the term uh, quality assurance problem rather than, you know, yeah. I mean, I would call it flat out lying. But around the time you were fired, that's <laughs> when out here we heard about uh, Malcolm Turnbull's captain call, captain's call. And what, close to how many million was it? Nearly half a billion dollars was yeah, invested. So were you the fly in the ointment, so to say? Uh, no, not particularly. There was, I mean, that was strange because it was a liberal um, uh, liberal national uh, politician. The people on the, the left wing still criticised him for the way he did it. But, yeah, for, for um, $440 million. And, by the way, that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I estimate there's close to a billion dollars every year going into saving the Great Barrier. It might be only you know half of that, but we're talking huge amounts every year that are being poured into it. The, the the scientific industry claiming that the reef is, you know, completely stuffed is far bigger than the fishing industry. It's a getting on to approach half the size of the, the sugar cane industry. There's that many people whose jobs depend on the Great Barrier Reef being doomed. So this is why you're when you say the reef isn't doomed and there's a quality assurance problem, <laughs> politely, um, People don't like that very much because there's a whole lot of jobs that depend on it. Well, it's interesting. I read a quote um, on Will Happer's um, recent tour. I, I watched his slides overnight, and uh, I know you assisted Will on that on that tour. But he quoted A.S. Puskin. He said, "If there should happen to be troughs, there will be pigs." And uh, yeah, that that is so apt here. I mean, uh, you're. You've had, you've you've actually blown my mind. I thought four hundred million was a huge amount of money, and it is uh, to have that significantly enhanced. And people are still feeding at the trough, uh, and the uh, and the, and the coral reef is in, or the Great Barrier Reef is in rude health. It just um, beggars belief. So, you know, aside from all of that, the vilification of the farming industry interests us a lot. Uh, we have the same thing here. Farming can be blamed for everything. We have a Resource Management Act that initially talked about uh, point source discharges and tidying all those up. And they were generally in towns and, and cities and industry. But then it became apparent about six or seven years after the enactment in 1991 of this RMA, that cumulative effect was a big deal. So that meant uh, the whole catchment of a, of a water body, uh, well, it caught everybody guilty or not. And it sounds like that's what's happening in your neck of the woods as well. Um, can you just sort of expand a little bit on how this is affecting the farming fraternity? Yes. I mean, everybody in the world knows that Great Barrier has been killed by climate change, right? So, But also, and this is for probably 25 years, Farmers are also blamed for killing the reef. So sediment coming off, supposedly smothering the coral, 
pesticides and nutrient pollution, right? So if we take one of those at a time, so the sediment, I was the guy who invented the instrumentation for measuring over long periods sediment around coral reefs. And we were able to prove without any shadow of a doubt that firstly, there's no, you know, an insignificant amount of sediment that gets out to the Great Barrier Reef in river plumes, in floods, because the reef is genuinely a very long way from the coast. It's, you know, here it's over 100 kilometres to most of it. Um, the inshore coral reefs, which are not even the Great Barrier Reef, we're also able to demonstrate that natural resuspension of sediment was far more important than anything that came out of the rivers. All that work was ignored. But now farmers have got huge extra regulations on them because they're adjacent to the Great Barrier Reef. So this is, you know, uh, 1,500 kilometres along the coast, right into the, the Great Dividing Range. Every farmer now has these regulations. Another example is pesticides. So they're claiming that pesticides need to be cut. And of course, everybody wants to cut pesticides if they can. But if you actually look on the Great Barrier Reef, and you actually take a bottle of water, which they do, which they do, you actually cannot even measure the pesticide because there is such ridiculously low concentration that even, you know, a part per trillion level, they're just not there. So farmers are blamed for pesticide pollution, even though you can't even measure that effect. So, the, so they're very, very clever. What they then do is they say, oh, well, look, all these ecosystems are all connecting. So even the estuaries are important to the Great Barrier Reef, even though the reef is 100 kilometres away. So we can measure pesticides in the estuaries, uh, and therefore you're damaging the Great Barrier Reef. So they essentially catch you um, by these quite, frankly, ridiculous scientific arguments. And this is where the quality assurance is, is the problem. So what? Are, so, so now I, we have... Yeah, sorry, excuse, me, excuse me. I, I think it's nitrates that are the issue that uh, also a worry. Is that... Is that yeah, case. so nitrates and, and phosphates, they say, is a problem. But when you actually take the measurements, there's a hundred times more cycling of nitrate, of basically nitrogen across the seabed, completely natural, you completely naturally due to uh, resuspension events, than there is coming down all the rivers. And this is a very open system. The Great Barrier Reef is flushed um, very rapidly. There's more water comes into and out of the Great Barrier in just eight hours than comes down all the rivers in a whole year. So there's no possibility that these um, nitrogen or phosphorus fertilisers are building up in the system. It's just ridiculous. But nevertheless, the farmers are blamed for that. And Don, I'm looking at the Australian government's reef program and uh, on the agricultural.gov.au website, they say from 2008 onwards, over the next decade, $158 million was spent on improving farmers' agricultural management practices and their reef catchments through grants to the industry. So there is this, that funding stream. And then it says farmers have invested an estimate $1.60 for each dollar provided by the Australian government. Another $140 million has been committed by the government, plus $53 million from the Department of Agriculture. So there is these gravy trains that are going through. And what Peter is talking about, there is this money flowing through. And we've seen how easily the ag bodies in New Zealand have gotten compromised. There's funding for very niche research, which then prove, gets the outcomes which are necessary to you know push the compliant machinery further. It's, it's staggering. And if I can add there, a lot of the agricultural organisations have been captured by that government money. So a lot of that money 
flows in through the agricultural organisations, which means now those agricultural organisations depend on that stream of money of and are less likely to buck the trend. There are exceptions to that, um, but it is a huge problem. Mm. Yeah, in, in about 2007, eight in New Zealand, uh, a term came back with a couple of politicians and an NGO leader uh, that had been to the Nordic regions, and they came back with this new way collaborative model. And as a farm leader at the time, an advocate, I sensed that this was uh, uh, a divisive concept and an onerous concept, and it's proven to be that way. So we've got all the farming organisations collaborating now, and they definitely have the handout, and they're in the hand of the regulator uh, more than they are representing their members. And uh, it saddens me that that's how easy it was to be captured by by the system. So can we just move on a little bit uh, to the topic of peer review? Um, I mean, it's it's used as the um as the beacon of everything uh peer review uh papers out of universities uh and it's like a quality mark isn't it yeah, yes the, uh, but but it just seems to be a bit tarnished in recent years uh in fact i think in one of your press releases you talk about 50 percent of the papers uh potentially are faulty haven't had enough uh is it called uh re reproducibility um over there content um have you got comments to make on the peer review process and and a, consequently another point uh could be the arxiv review process um organization as well can you make comment about those types of yeah um, so peer review concepts? is the main quality assurance system used to in, in science so you know they often talk it's the gold standard and believe me in science we have this huge quality assurance problem it turns out that when checks are made on peer-reviewed literature, when you actually do a real proper follow-up check, roughly about half of it turns out to have serious flaws. That's not me saying that. This has been repeated again and again and again in lots of fields of science. So peer review is a joke as a quality assurance mechanism. If Toyota used uh, peer review, <laughs> you know, such a hopeless system, one in two Toyotas would have a serious, like a really serious fault, but that doesn't happen. Now, most people think peer review is when maybe a dozen scientists pour over the work and they redo the experiments, they check the analyses, but it's not like that. It's usually just a quick read for a couple of hours by a couple of scientists who may even be your mates, and that's peer review. So it's little wonder that it's so wrong so often. So we have in science this thing that's now very well known, this thing called the replication crisis, where we know that a huge amount of the recent science uh, is wrong. Not the sort of the Newton's laws of motions and, you know, the really rock solid stuff that's been around for a long time. But the recent peer reviewed work is, is just completely hopeless. And that's the main system which we use. So scientists are certainly looking at this problem, like the, you know, the ex-archive stuff. Um, but I don't think they've they've appreciated the corollary of the fact that so much of the peer-reviewed work is wrong. It means that a lot of these huge issues like New Zealand farming or climate change, which are relying on the peer-reviewed system, must inevitably be compromised. We don't know just how badly because nobody has bothered to spend the money. So I've been saying, let's say, for the Australian Research Council, we should be spending 10% of our research funds checking research, doing quality assurance. Quality assurance actually costs money to do. 
that we don't spend. That's the other thing about peer review. It's done for nothing by your mates. When you pay nothing, you, you probably don't get high quality. But that is the essence of the problem we have in science. It is a quality assurance problem, and peer review is part of that problem. And so linking to that, um, perhaps we have the Royal Society, who I believe, and I'm a layman, yes. I thought, oh, you trust everything the Royal Society um, puts out, everything is trustworthy in there, and, and you, you have a chief science advisor, I think, uh, I'm pretty sure I met one of them in the past, um, and uh, we have one as well, and uh, they allow themselves to be seriously politicised. Uh, so is the compromise at the Royal Society, is there compromise everywhere? Where can we find um, people like you <laughs> that that stand tall on this stuff? How many, yeah, where can we find enough of them to turn the tide? There is almost no scientific organisation that is not now compromised. I mean, there are aspects of those of most organisations where there's still a, you know, a small group, but they're almost all in the minority. So all the uh, effort is coming from outside, you know, organisations with serious scientific clout behind them, like the Global Warming Policy Foundation in the United Kingdom or the Carbon Dioxide Coalition in the, uh, in the United States. I mean, you should see the list of very eminent scientists there. They're mainly uh, retired, so they're not depending upon their livelihood now because this is the problem that the, the gravy chain corrupts the, 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 the scientists because they cannot speak out. I mean, the number of scientists that I've spoken to that will say, look, I agree with you, but, you know, I've got a mortgage, I've got kids at school, I really can't afford to say a great deal. So the, the fight back is coming from outside the, um, the main institutions, but it's being extremely effective. Uh, and you're seeing around the world, you know, a rollback. I, I think very important is that there's a Rasmussen poll in the United States that asked the people the question, do you believe that climate change is becoming a religion that is being used to control people? And 60% of Americans agreed with that. So despite this pile on by the scientific institutions, people can see that climate, this whole climate change thing is not just scientific. It's got a, a much more of a political, quasi-religious almost uh, aspect to it. So despite the fact that we are, we are small in number, and have almost no funds, we're being incredibly effective. Well, and Don, doesn't this remind you of uh, the paper that we've spoke about uh, on, I think it was early last week, by the Greek researcher, Dr. John Oanides, I think it was, and he had written this paper in 2005, uh, which said yeah. why most research findings are false. They, he followed it up in a collaboration with others, which was about why yeah. innovation is not true. So, you know, how FDA and CDC, 75% of the drugs they've produced in the last decade are just repurposed. What you're saying, Peter, just sounds to me as if, you know, I'm hearing an echo of those same things. John Ionides is the uh, really the, uh, the guy who invented, for one of a better word, the replication crisis. He's the guy who blew the whistle on it. And this is, everybody knows this is true. Even the big journals that will will, you know, sign up to climate change. They all know that the replication crisis is a thing, but they hide themselves, they stick their head in the sand when they look at what the corollary of it must be, which is that now you actually are struggling to have faith in any scientific institution because you know they're not checking it yeah. uh, well enough. Now, that doesn't mean that everything they're doing is wrong. It's just that if there's a chance that what they say is right, well, you may as well toss a coin. You, you know, this is not science anymore. Science is about 
getting things reliably. Um, but I think that that the COVID, um, the whole COVID response has, has further shown that there are problems within the scientific institutions, that although a lot of what they did was, was doubtless correct and, and right, a lot of what they did, they actually lied to us too, I'm afraid. Uh, and what this will ultimately mean is that more and more politicians are seeing we need a broom to go through the scientific institutions, quality assurance systems need to be coming, challenges, red teams, blue teams like Will Happer um, talks about, uh, and to make science trustworthy again. Yeah. And but you don't do it like the government has just done. What are they saying, the Australians, that one point two billion dollars been given in this budget, or it's going to be spread out till twenty thirty, or yeah, for the reef. There, there goes any sort of credibility altogether. How well, much? As I, as I say, it would only to do a proper audit on reef science, and you know, it, I estimate would cost you no more than a few million dollars. I actually. We had a Senate inquiry on this exact matter of quality assurance on the, the science. And, you know, the Australian Research Council says, oh, we can't afford to do all this quality assurance. I mean, <laughs> can you imagine Toyota saying we don't have the money to do quality assurance? <laughs> I mean, it's just a joke. You know, they get the Australian Research Council gets, I forget the exact numbers, but maybe a billion dollars a year. And I'm saying to them, you should allocate five million dollars every year. Ten million dollars would, would be better just to do checks now on the reef a couple of million dollars would be heaps mm. you blow the whistle but most importantly now these scientists who can say anything and never be challenged because they own the peer review process they own the consensus group so they're never challenged now they know they're going to be challenged and mm. now they have to become uh, trustworthy at the moment they can say the absolute ridiculous things like for example, just the other day, a report came out saying dugongs, which are these big sea cows that eat seagrass on the reef, apparently they're in decline. Well, actually, there's 300% more dugongs out there now than there was in 2011. But nobody will ever challenge them because they own the peer review process. If they had to front up every year to a Senate estimates committee saying, well, we've done the audit on this, you said this, it was wrong, what have you got to say for yourself? Now they would have to start to become trustworthy again because it would be very embarrassing and funds would be withdrawn from And if the number of advisory, uh, the committee membership of the Reef 2050 plan, if I just look at the big players, so leave alone, they've said the traditional owner groups, AgForce, there is uh, yeah. the Marine Park Tourism Operators Group, there is the Australian Institute of Marine Science, there's the cane growers, there's the carefish there is the Reef yep. Marine Authority. There is local government, Queensland, Queensland Farmers Federation, Queensland Ports Association, Queensland Seafood Industry, and of course, World Wildlife Fund. That's always been a partner of United Nations and IPCC. Between all of these people, putting up two million is is not a lot. These, if I add the turnover of all these groups, that's a few billion dollars there, if not tens of billions. Well, can I? Can I say most of those groups aren't supplying a brass razoo, right? All that money's coming from the government. But mm. a lot of that money gets focused through them. Into groups. them. So, of course, yeah. they sign up, right? Of course. And by the way, it's, it's a lot more than that, right? If you add up all the other way that funds go into the Great Barrier, it's a lot more than that. But, yeah, they, they are, not all of those groups are corrupted. But, um, for example, the tourist operators, right? Mm. Now, you'd think that they'd be banging the whistle that the reef is fine, you need to tell everybody, but they can't because 
every tourist operator needs a permit from the Great Barrier Green Park Authority to operate, right? If they get on the wrong side of the Great Barrier Green Park Authority by saying, we don't believe that climate change is killing the reef, the reef is fine, or whatever, those operators can lose their permit. In addition, quite a lot of those operators are actually taking money to kill crown of thorns starfish, which is which is a completely natural animal, right? It, we shouldn't be killing it. So, you know, many tens of millions of dollars goes in literally to hire tourist operators' boats to go off and kill these crown of thorns starfish. So the money is corrupted. The peer review process and the, the total lack of quality insurance in science is corrupted. Uh, the only way is to have a complete new broom go through, get quality assurance in and start asking some really hard questions. It was interesting. You highlighted one of the contradictions in recent months about the IPCC's um, uh, output. Uh, talked about how coral reefs will leave, lose 90% of their coral with a trivial 1.5%. 99%. Oh, 99%. 99%. Oh, well. But in fact, and you highlight that. Yeah. You highlight that warming is actually good. Sorry. That, that's right. A, a one degree increase in temperature on the Great Barrier will mean the corals, depending on where you are, will grow probably 30% faster. I mean, this is well known. You don't go to southern Queensland to see the best reefs. 1% increase in temperature in southern Queensland will make those reefs grow better, but it will make us grow even faster. So warming is a good thing uh, for almost every reef in the world, right? There are corals even down in New Zealand. They don't form reefs because they grow so ridiculously slowly, right? But there's corals more or less anywhere, and they need to be warmer to grow better. So the reef is actually probably the best example where you can demonstrate that the, that the science is completely and utterly ridiculously wrong because it's the one place where you actually expect climate change to do better, to make them grow better. Mm. And yeah. you also use this uh, sentence, and I think I understand it, but uh, for listeners, uh, Professor, you said corals are cockroaches. What what did you mean by that? <laughs> and I, I know a few, uh, you know, the skeptics group had a field day with that one. You can't stop these things growing, right? I, I guarantee you, if you put a block of concrete at, down on the, on the bottom of the ocean, sink a boat or something like that, or in our case, put instrumentation out to measure it, which we did a lot, within a year, there'll be corals actually growing on them, right? You can't stop these things growing. You know, the Americans um, <laughs> set off these enormous uh, nuclear explosions, explosions on, a, on a coral reef out in the Pacific Ocean, in, in Etoic Atoll and Bikini Atoll. And within a few years, the corals are, are back there growing better than ever, right? These things have been around for a couple of hundred million years. Um, in parts of Indonesia, they do terrible things to the reef, which, you know, we really look after our Great Barrier really well. But mm. in Indonesia, they've been using in the past explosives to fish, massive pollution, and yet the coral still grows. It's right. definitely degraded. It's nowhere near as good as our coral. But you've actually got to quite try quite hard to kill a reef, which doesn't mean to say we shouldn't look after it. We really want to look after our reef. But these are not little canaries in the coal mine that are going to just fall over. That you know, they say 1.5 degrees, 99% of corals will die. We're already at one degree, supposedly. So the next half a degree, we're going to go from record amounts of coral out there to 99% of it dead. What mm. creature is so precariously on the cliff edge that it's going to die, especially corals, which have been through so much and can deal with temperature? 
And that actually, I think that's one fact I didn't know. I remember biology lessons, what, ago, 30 years ago. And two things are stuck in my head. That the cockroach, I think scientific name is Periplaneta Americana. And the other thing I remember the teacher saying that we don't know whether they are super evolved or what, but the cockroaches, they've not changed. They're, you know, tough as guts, tough as they yeah. come. Yeah. And that no one no one wants to talk about stuff like this. But uh, Professor Red, would you tell us what have you been doing now? Because I know you work with the Institute of Public Affairs. Can you tell us about the work you're doing now? We're, we're pushing uh, this whole uh, science quality assurance problem whenever we can. So this is the root cause that our scientists are untrustworthy. I, I hate to say it. Mm. I'm a scientist. I've been a scientist all my life. But, but as a profession, we are amongst the least trustworthy of all the professions. And that's saying something. Uh, so it's essentially that, pushing out the good news on the reef, working with farmers' organisations when we can um, to try to uh, put a bit of scientific rigour in what the other side is saying and defending the scientists, the, the farmers against this uh, very, very dodgy science. We've got this programme called Reef Rebels. We're trying to get to younger people to tell them that the reef is actually doing very, very well. Uh, and we're doing a whole bunch of videos um, that called Reef Rebels and also Brilliant and Broken Science, showing, showcasing the wonderful scientific achievements that have been, but also some of the disasters that are happening, not just nowadays, but also in the past, where science has gone a bit wrong. Right. And, uh, yeah, we've had Ian Plymer on the show, Professor Ian Plymer, and um, he's put out three books recently. We're really seeing an uptick in people like you and him and others starting to do this re-education program. Uh, clearly, it's a massive task when you analyse uh, the universities uh, that perhaps are resistant to uh, this sort of approach. So, you know, how do you get this funded, um, uh, Peter? Because it's, it's going to be seriously costly. Well, eventually, and this is the other thing we're trying to do, eventually what's got to happen is that um, at the governmental level, they've got to start doing these audits, right? Uh, and we're having quite a lot of success, uh, in, at least in the opposition parties, the conservative parties, uh, convincing a lot of people there that there is a problem in the institutions and that you've got to tackle that. So uh, in terms of funding, there's no, there's no funding at the moment come, coming from the traditional sources. But I think that's going to change, that as more and more people realise the corruption in science, mm. um, you know, the next Minister of Environment might well be able to find, you know, 10 million bucks uh, to uh, do an audit of reef science, and that will be an absolute game changer. Mm. Uh, you're also seeing in the UK this idea that there's a problem with the scientific institutions, and so once the, the political realisation starts to happen, the public already know that scientists are untrustworthy because they, you know, these Rasmussen polls are, yeah. are showing remarkable scepticism despite the massive pylon. Um, once that funding comes through from the government, but not through the traditional sources, I think that the uh, there will be a complete change. But we've actually been surprisingly successful because we've got the truth on our side, and that's uh, that's worth a billion dollars any day. Right. That is that's good to hear. At least someone collaborating with some of these groups being affected, like farmers. And I, I especially as a mom of young children, I really worry about the younger generation. How they now have counselors for eco anxiety, believe it or not. The curriculum our schools have here, I've not looked at the Australian ones, but it is bringing climate change into every single thing. And that's yeah. you know you 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 get a get a 
set, the next generation would be completely petrified more than anything. Well, that's true, and that's certainly what they're intending to do, and there's a good chunk of those uh, of our youth who feel exactly that, they're literally depressed. But there's a surprising number of them that know they're being brainwashed and are not buying it. You know, it's not half, Mm. uh, but I reckon it's a good 30 or 40%, and as time goes on, they're going to realise more and more. And as they get older and as... You know, they'll look at, well, you know, a degree, it's not that bad, especially in, you know, the south, south of New Zealand. I mean, is really a degree a, that much of a problem in the south of New Zealand? And that start of start reality comes into play. You're seeing it in Europe at the moment where they're winding back all these net zero things because they're seeing that this is actually ridiculous. So, yes, the brainwashing is a terrible problem. The universities are disastrous. The education system right around the Western world is a disaster. But I think that already you can see the wheels are falling off. But that's, you know, you are saying that with a lifetime in academia, Peter. It it's, must be really hard to look back at the career you've given um, your all to like this. Yeah, to, to see what's happened to universities, it's just a crime, Shane. You know, to, they were places where you, well, we did argue all the time in the 1990s on the Great Barrier Reef. We were arguing that sediment from farms was having no effect and the other side was arguing the opposite. Nowadays, that argument can't happen. You, mm. you just can't get funded. You you can't uh, you can get fired. <laughs> um, all these sorts of things can happen now, which they didn't have. How you sort out the universities, I do not know, right? Uh, but I do know how to sign to sort out the science problem. Well, certainly in New Zealand, uh, since the turn of the century. Uh, we've had a gravy train around um, the science of uh, greenhouse gases uh, from animals. Uh, it's now probably $700 million in the bin um, for, for nothing, really. Uh, we were all about efficiency in our animals, and you know, we've got very efficient animals, as do many parts of Australia, no doubt. But yeah. um, no, we're spending hundreds of millions on this gravy train uh, on some sort of supposed crusade uh, to to reduce warming. Um, your work with uh, the IPA, uh, the Institute of Public Affairs, and you're an adjunct fellow there, um, is is um, helpful. You've just been on a tour with uh, Professor William Happer around Australia for a for, four-city uh, tour. It was called the Crusade Against CO2. Have you got any takeouts quickly for, for, for our listeners from that tour that you think are critical? I think the crucial thing is that the you know the proof that that CO two by itself you know it's really only going to it only has a very very marginal effect, uh, but I think the reaction to it has been to the tour has been quite interesting. You know, there's still a huge amount of enthusiasm for the sceptical side. People are really listen to, listening to it, and probably more than ever. The other thing is that that something that is almost always forgotten is the huge benefits of having more CO2 in the atmosphere, especially in Australia, actually, which is a dry uh, dry country, because of the increased um, water utilisation ability of uh, when you increase the, the CO2 because the stomata and the leaves close down, so the uh, plants lose less water to get the same amount of carbon, which is very, very important, obviously, for growing um, plants. So... That was a, a thing, I think, an eye-opener for a lot of people. It's something we should um, push much more, that, that the present day agriculture has been massively benefited by extra carbon dioxide 
but also obviously from the nitrogen fertilizers and these other things. Mm. Yeah, so it, it intrigued me to watch uh, the presentation that he made in Sydney and talking about how uh, over you know, oxygen is actually something that has to sort of, sort of, can I put words in his mouth? No, I shouldn't. I've just used my own words, detoxify. It's oh, There's too much oxygen going into yeah. sort of some plants. I'm, I've never known or even considered that. So, look, I'd implore our listeners to uh, go onto the IPA website and have a um, look at the 42-minute, I think it is, YouTube clip of William Happer address. Um Going on to just one other, we'll, we'll wrap this up pretty soon, but one other press release I think I saw through your, um, uh, uh, what was it called, uh, the organisation, the Project for Real Science, uh, was around the Tongan volcano. And it's often talked about uh, on this show that the amount of water that went into the atmosphere uh, was massive and has had an effect on the uh, precipitation that's falling on New Zealand. Um, yeah, is is that is that a reasonable assessment? I mean, look, I don't know for sure. I mean, it's, it's stratospheric water and mm. not just the atmosphere because it got mm. up so high. And the stratosphere is usually very, very dry because it's so very cold. Look, I honestly don't know. I, I I'm I, I'm doubtful of it, but I but I really don't know enough about it to to really say anything useful. But you know, this is one of the problems where. If you were a scientist and you wanted now to get funding from, say, Marsden, you know, in New Zealand, Australian Research Council in Australia, to look at this problem, you wouldn't have a snowball's hope in hell of getting that cash, or it'd be very difficult, because climate change is the only game in town, and anything that that contradicts that, you know, volcanoes might be really, really important to climate and a whole lot of other things. Anything that contradicts that climate change narrative. Is viewed very suspiciously. You could be a skeptic. Uh, we're not going to fund it. So this is one of the problems. It's certainly something which we need to uh, investigate. As are lots of things about the atmosphere which we haven't got a clue about. We don't have a clue about how clouds form. Unbelievably, we don't actually know the the physical processes very well about water droplet formations, how it get, they get bigger and bigger, and rainfalls out. Fundamental problems. And you're not allowed to, very hard to research that because climate change is the only science which you need to worry about nowadays. Yeah, I'm sorry if I um, mischaracterized um, that topic. I thought I had read it in one of your uh, press statements. I now can't find it. So um, if I said that incorrectly, I apologize. I put you on the spot. Look, um, we'll probably have to wrap this. Uh, it's uh, We'd love to have you back on the show uh, sometime, Peter. We stand with you on uh, your desire to have uh, scientific integrity put in front of the public. Um, and that's something that, you know, we're crying out for. We are slowly in this country, and I see it, and I, I watch Australian television more than any television, actually, because it's better than here. Um, uh, but we're crying out for some integrity around this net zero stuff uh, and yeah. and the spending, uh, wasteful spending of our governments. We're just, we're just over it. And People like you, and we have we have a few in New Zealand standing up. So look, you've been to hell and back, um, and, and the way I observed, and I've been watching you for a long time. Uh, by the way, um, I think you have endured something that most human beings shouldn't have to endure. Um, and thank you for standing tall and fighting on behalf of those of us that do want this integrity. So um, we appreciate you coming on to RCR's Greenwash today. And look forward to having you back with some really good stories in the future. It was my pleasure. Thanks very much. 
RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Making a difference. Welcome back, Don, and I hope you enjoyed that talk with Peter Rudd. I certainly did. And what a fine gentleman standing up for ethics and science. Fantastic, brave, uh, upstanding, got loads of integrity, and um, you wouldn't believe um, he just doesn't he he doesn't want any sort of uh, gratitude or special um, special accolades. He's just doing his job as he knows yeah. how to do it. Fantastic individual. Yeah, and if you want to uh, look up more on Peter Rudd, please go to his uh, program that is the Project for Real Science. Or you can look up uh, what Peter mentioned, Reef Rebels on YouTube, and you'll mm-hmm. see a whole lot more. But before we go, and I know we've done and I have spoken a lot today. Before we go, I'd like to draw your attention to this email that popped into my mailbox over this weekend, just gone. It came from Fonterra, uh, and it talked about inviting applications for an appointed counselor, appointed counselor. And it says that under its bylaws, the Fonterra Council may appoint up to three additional persons as councillors if it determines that the breadth, that is a typo there, breadth, thanks for pointing that out, Don, breadth of diversity along the co-op is not represented, whether by skill set, farm size, supplier relationships, gender, ethnicity, or otherwise. So Fonterra has identified that there is a gap in the representation And they said this year's appointment, the purpose of inviting these applications is to address one or more of the following diversity gaps. Uh, One being counselors who are currently share milkers or contract milkers, another being those with a system, one dairy farm that's a very low input dairy farm. Counselors who identify as being an ethnicity or nationality other than NZ European or Pakeha and counselors who are multi-farm suppliers. Now, the third one caught my attention, Don. Counselors who identify, number one, I don't like this term identify, counselors who are, mm. who identify as being of an ethnicity or nationality other than New Zealand, European slash Pakeha. What does this mean? Well, it's it's all a bit uh, woke, as you might call it in the past. And I look, we're going to have Thomas Sowell on after this, and he talks about cosmic justice in the last century, and that was sort of the forebear or forerunner of, of the term woke or social justice. But the thing is, Jaspreet, this came to me from a friend over the weekend as well. It's none of my business, really. It's none of my business. Uh, uh, effectively, this is the Fonterra Shareholder Council's um, uh, document. But because we've been all over this like a rash, Um, It is appropriate we talk about it. And clearly, um, I would have thought that the dairy farmers and the lower order share milkers and contract milkers would be about the most diverse bunch of people in New Zealand already. And if Fonterra Shareholders Council is not finding any of them standing up to be represented, 
as widely as they think, maybe they've got a problem with regard to the enthusiasm in the industry. Exactly. That's that's where one would start, that there's not enough people, you know, just putting their hands up. Hmm. Now, interestingly, I pop this on uh, two. I'm, actually, I'm allowed only in a grand total of two farming groups. I've been banned from most of the others over the last three or four years. I wonder why. <laughs> and I popped this uh, screenshot of that email on a couple of other dairy farming groups. And I, I don't take stuff personally. Not anymore. I don't. But boy, did I cop it from people. Every single person who commented on my posts, which was essentially just a screenshot of this email, guys, what do you think? I don't agree. And uh, they all seem to agree. Now, well, Don and I, you know, Don, we've spoken about this in the form of DEI, the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Agenda of uh, the United Nations and WEF and all of these. It was very strange. Dairy farmers seem to think this is great. I'll read out verbatim one of the responses and a bit of an exchange that I had. And I won't take any names of the people who've uh, replied there. So when I popped this, the first person wrote, so when you look at boards with five white men, age 50 to 65, that have had similar life experiences, do you think their ideas are going to be different? Diversity encourages different outlooks and ideas to experience. How can that be a bad thing? So I replied, dear so-and-so, I'm all for diversity as long as it's diversity of thought or opinion. Gender, ethnicity, and diversity, and nationality diversity, not so much. So this person responded, just breathe. I'd say it's a he. Uh, how do you propose a diversity of thought or opinion if you have only one range of members? So you remember, this person had said that most of the people in the shareholder council, as per their opinion, are 50 to 65-year-old white men, right? And he says, how is that going to be? Ask all the opinion, ask every applicant on the opinions of X, Y, Z, or accept that a diverse range of ethnicities and nationalities would have a better range of thought. Now, mm. I replied, I said, I don't, I find that premise, Don, very ridiculous. And I wrote as much. I said, how do you, because the very premise of this is, because everyone, as this person says, is an average middle-aged white male, they all think alike. How right would that be? The world is 8 billion people. Those of the European origin, as per Wikipedia, Google, are something like 15 to 20%. So, right? 1.6 yes. billion people. So, the premise is that they all think alike? Well, I can tell you, I've chaired boards um, of very diverse middle-aged white men, uh, if that's what we are going to label ourselves as, because <laughs> that was all that was there. And I can tell you, we scrap like the best of them. Um, there is, uh, and farmer boards are notorious for having um, a massive diverse diversity of thought to the point where um, just about everything gets sort of emasculated and held up because uh, things don't get easily through. Um, the regimes. So I go right back though. I keep thinking um, to my earlier comment, I'm not a shareholder. The shareholders own these businesses and um, not the stakeholders. And that's the term that everyone likes to use now. It's around stakeholder uh, relationships and stakeholder this and stakeholder. Sorry, it's all about shareholders. Yeah. Yes. Go right back to what it should be. It's around ownership rights. And that's where this should sit. And currently it's not. And for me, so listeners, while just before Don and I wrap up, we would love some feedback from you 
on what you think. Do you think every single middle-aged white man between the ages 50 to 65 thinks the same? Because that is the premise as best as I can understand English. And I have to admit, English is my third language. Um, <laughs> being a bit petulant here, but that's what I understand. So they, they yeah. are asking for a diversity of nationality or ethnicity. And you just need to identify. You don't even need to be because identify and being is different things because that will bring a diversity on the board. I do not agree. The very basis of this is wrong. It's like saying we want an Indian you know, on the board because Indians will think different. How do you know that, mm. say, if I uh, land up on that council, that I won't think like a white man, middle-aged white man? How? So we'd, yeah. we'd love some feedback on this. What do you think of these sort of measures, these DEIs coming into what should actually be businesses just focused on the bottom line of farmers? And Don, last thoughts from you on this, you know, especially as you've been the president, national president of Feds. What would you have thought of something like this in your well, tenure? Well, you know, we did have people say there's not enough women and fed farmers at the at the time, but of course there was rural women um, holding their court. Um, but mm -hmm. Uh, just soon after I left Federated Farmers, um, we had a president, national president at Federated Farmers, Katie Milne, um, female. Uh, I'm not sure about the ethnicity on um, on Fed's boards yet, but certainly around the boards and manager, management companies that I've been involved with, there is serious diversity. I think this is all just virtue signaling by Fonterra uh, uh, shareholder council. I mean, someone's done the research. They pay someone for it. Um, that's the problem. The shareholders are paying for it. Uh, what value does it add? Yeah, look, it's in their court, not as. But you get a bit sick of it. Anyway, we've got Thomas Sowell on after this, and he might just put his perspective on and um, get a bit of logic and reason back into the debate. Yeah, have a listen to this clip uh, about equity, equality, and social justice from someone who, you know, how do you describe Thomas Sowell? So if for this case, I will mention his ethnicity. He's an African-American, while you listen to this. Uh, very, very distinguished professor. He is close to 90, if not over. And uh, boy, does he call it out as he sees it. Mm. So from Don and me, thank you so much for joining us today. Have a great rest of the day where you are. This is the Greenwash team signing off. Bye-bye. Bye. I guess the first thing to do is to define what cosmic justice is as distinguished from whatever other kind of justice uh, we may be familiar with. Uh, traditional justice, I guess we can summarize, at least in the American uh, tradition, as applying the same rules and the same standards to everybody. Cosmic justice is very different. It means equalizing the prospects of everybody. And those two things are not only different in concept, they are wholly incompatible with one another. If you apply the same rules and standards to everybody in baseball, Mark McGuire is going to hit 70 home runs. And there are going to be other people who will spend an entire career without hitting 70 home runs. So if you want the one thing or the other, you can go for it. But the one thing you cannot do is pursue the two things simultaneously. Or rather, you cannot successfully do that. The Supreme Court has been pursuing the two things simultaneously for quite a, quite a while, leading to a lot of five to four decisions uh, and inconsistent decisions. The requirements for the two kinds of justice are very different. The requirement for treating everyone the same is very simple. It's mass produced. The requirements for cosmic justice must be handmade and tailored to each individual case. 
It's much more complex. And it requires a much larger amount of government power. Some third party must intervene to determine whether the outcomes are right, whether the prospects are right. The very same words have entirely different meanings within these two frameworks. In fact, as I mentioned in the preface to the book, what really set me off a few years ago to finish it up was a discussion with one of my colleagues at Stanford University, who shall be anonymous in deference to the libel laws, <laughs> uh, who talked about a level playing field. And it became plainly clear that what he called a level playing field is what I would have called a tilted playing field. Tilted so as to produce the results that he wanted. When we talk about a fair fight, that means very different things in these two, within these two frameworks. Uh, a fair fight by traditional standards means that both boxers observe the Marcus of Queensbury rules, and the fight is fair whether it ends up in a draw or one-sided beating. From the other point of view, from the cosmic perspective, it's fair only when the two fighters enter the ring with the same prospects of winning. Uh, John Rawls has um, sort of summarized and epitomized these two differences. He distinguishes what he calls fair equality of opportunity from merely formal equality of opportunity. Uh, traditional justice or fairness by Rawls' standards means simply that people are, are judged by the same rules. But genuine equality of opportunity, as he calls it, cannot be achieved by this, uh, by this method. Instead, he says, undeserved inequalities call for redress. Uh, and obviously, someone must have power in order to do that redress. Now, what's called, what I call cosmic justice has been called by some people social justice. But I think they're unduly modest because they're trying to correct not only the inequities that they see in society, they're trying to, to correct the oversights of God or the defects of the cosmos. When some people are born uh, with physical or mental handicaps, they want to counterbalance that. And of course, that's not always caused by society. So that when Rawls says that undeserved inequalities, he includes all sorts of things. And that, that opens up a very large area for others. You can find this perspective on uh, justice, the Rawlsian perspective, in many places, from the street corner community activists right up to the chambers of the Supreme Court. For example, a few years ago, a, uh, an admissions director at Stanford University wrote a book in which she pointed out that during all her years as an admissions director, she had never required students to submit achievement tests. Because some of those students, she said, through no fault of their own, attended schools where they could not have acquired the, the skills necessary to do well on such tests. So she's trying to redress the inequalities, and therefore she would simply not require such tests. The, the educational testing service is currently engaging in a, a renorming of test scores to take into account the social backgrounds and handicaps of the students so that the score will then, again, redress pre-existing inequalities rather than applying the same standards to everybody. Whenever I hear the notions of fairness in education, I think back to my own education. And I think, thank God my teachers were unfair to me when I was a kid growing up in Harlem. Uh, one of these teachers was a lady named Miss Simon, who belonged to what might be called the General Patton School of Education. 
Uh, I cannot even imagine that Ms. Simon gave a moment's thought to my self-esteem. <laughs> Every word that we misspelled in her class had to be written 50 times, not in class, but as part of our homework. And there was always plenty of other homework from her and other teachers. And so you misspelled four or five words and you had quite an evening ahead of you. <laughs> Very little chance of listening to the Lone Ranger. Now, was this fair in Rawlsian terms? And the answer is no. Like many of the children in Harlem at that time, I came from a home where nobody had gone beyond elementary school. I still remember what a big fuss was made when I was promoted to the seventh grade because I had gone further than anyone else. Uh, in later years when I graduated from Harvard, it, there was no such fuss. They expected me to. <laughs> but fairness was never an option. There was nothing Ms. Simon or anybody else could do about the fact that we came from homes uh, where we did not I have books and magazines, and we were not as familiar with those words as people from other neighborhoods might have been. So that was never an option. Nothing that the schools could have done would have changed that. It would have been an irresponsible self-indulgence for them to have pretended to make things fair. If there's anything worse than unfairness, it is make-believe fairness. They could, like the college board apparently is trying to do, pretended that we knew more than we did. And that would have made them feel good. It would not have done much for us. Instead, they forced us to meet standards that were a little harder for us to meet than they were for some other kids, but far more necessary for us to meet, because that was the only way out of poverty. Many years later, I happened to uh, run into one of the other kids from Harlem who w went to that same school at the same time. And by now, he was uh, a psychiatrist he owned a, a home in the Napa Valley and property out there. In fact, now he's uh, retired, living overseas with servants, while yours truly is still trying to make a living. <laughs> but as we uh, reminisced about uh, things that had happened in the old days and what had happened in between, one of the things he mentioned was that over the years, his various secretaries had commented on the fact that he seldom misspelled a word. <laughs> I told him that my secretaries had made that very same observation and that if they knew Miss Simon, there would be no mystery as to why we did not misspell words. Now, it so happens I became a high school dropout. But what I was taught before I dropped out was enough for me to score higher on the verbal SAT than the average Harvard student, which may have had something to do with my being admitted to Harvard in an era before affirmative action was even thought of. What if the teachers of that era had been imbued with the present-day conception of fairness? Where would my schoolmate and I be today? On welfare, in prison, perhaps in a halfway house if we were lucky. Jaspreet Bopara 